Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. I'm worried driving the car with obviously NCT test. I'm not going to give this any more credence. I'm not going to let the person win. I will not be a victim. We have nothing to put the patient onto, so they're safer on an ambulance trolley. What I get in the morning, PJ, is crack. It's like yarding. Join the conversation. Call 0818 96 96 96. Extra WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Cox 96. Good morning, good morning, good morning. It's Gareth O'Callaghan here for PJ through this week. And it's an absolutely beautiful morning looking out of the, the the city here. It's just, it's it's lovely. It's a real 1st of August, slightly autumnal morning. There's a bit of a coolness about it, but it's a beautiful sunny morning. And it's um, pretty calm from where I'm sitting here now. And hopefully this is a, this is a, it augurs well if this is the, the way we're going to get the weather for August. August is one of my favourite months. It tends to be kind of a... Um, it, it's the holiday season and it feels that way and it's our final chance to chill out before we get back into the madness of September but more on that uh, later in the month I'm sure PJ will have uh, plenty to talk about when he gets back now um, the big story tragic story in the news this morning as I'm sure you've heard two teens dead in Deb's Night Horror this is unthinkable really uh, two teenage students were killed in a tragic crash on their way to a Deb's ball last night three other people badly injured in the smash on the N54 near Clonus in County Monaghan were rushed to hospital it's believed all five passengers were travelling in the same car photographs of the small country road where the smash happened uh, closed off the uh, the Gardaí and emergency services in attendance the two girls were aged 16 and 17 uh, presumably on their way to meet their Deb's dates and it's just it's one of those stories you don't really imagine it could ever happen because Deb's dances and graduation balls are a rite of passage and I remember vividly vividly remember my Deb's dance um, the girl I wanted to bring with me was going out with one of my friends so I remember asking him in my innocence would he mind if I could borrow her for the evening and I'd bring her back home in one piece uh, I didn't drink at that stage and she didn't drink either and I thought this will be a wonderful uh, a, a wonderful evening because uh, I secretly fancied her but he didn't know that I think he did that's why he actually got her father to say no you can't bring her He's go- she's gone out with Liam get out of here but what happened then was um, Bill who was her dad 
turned around and said, but you can take her sister. She's not going out with anybody. Um, and I, 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 I thought, I was friends with her sister as well, and I thought, well, actually, that's a good, that's a good night out. Ah, yes, the innocence of the 1970s. As many people say they were far from innocent, but I led a very innocent, uh, almost sort of herm- hermit-style life back then. I suppose I still do. Anyway, it's just a shocking story. Um, and, you know, the, the reason I, I remind myself of, of happy memories when I went to my Deb's dance and we were able to sit with the teachers who are now our friends at that stage and it was just such a, a wonderful, wonderful evening. Uh, now a fight broke out as they tend to, but uh, you don't imagine that something like this is going to happen when you wave off your daughters and photographs have been taken and the day has been taken up with makeup and hair and nails and pedicures and that beautiful dress then that you see them wearing when they're ready to leave and they head off and you think this is the beginning of the rest of their lives and within half an hour the guardy call on your door and they say I'm sorry there's been a terrible tragedy it's just unthinkable. Anyway, it's uh, covered on all of the front pages today. And uh, it really, really is shocking, shocking news. Anyway, our hearts go out to the families involved. Now, speaking of summers, uh, if someone in your house has got their first job, <clears throat> maybe they're in transition year, maybe they've just finished their junior cert, or maybe they're just doing a little bit of part-time work here and there, maybe in the local pub, maybe in a local deli, maybe in the local cafe, whatever it might be. Uh, Joanne Hunt in today's Irish Times has a brilliant piece about money, working hours, meal breaks and tax. What young workers need to know about summer jobs. Uh, Once again, going back to my summers when I was a young fella, you'd walk into the local grocery shop and you'd be told, yep, just stack the shelves there. And when the shelves were stacked, you were told, right, just fill those shelves over there. And then if you just go down into the storeroom and just check the dates on this and the dates on that. And then at the end of the day, you'd be given a few be given a few bob. I remember my first job, I got truppence for working a weekend. I have no idea whether I was taken uh, <laughs> for, for a bit of a food or whether I'd made a fortune back then. But anyone who remembers the truppity piece, yeah, I know, we're going back to dinosaur area here. So... Um, as Joanne Hunt says, she says, to a child who's used to a slow drip feed of pocket money, getting a lump sum after a week, pulling 99s can feel like a bonanza. Buying a fancy phone, acrylic nails, snazzy sneakers, it's at last all in reach. They're a valued source of labour, particularly for businesses with seasonal peaks. These workers can be enthusiastic, energetic and flexible. Yes, I'll stay on for an extra three hours. But they're also inexperienced and slightly gullible. They're my words, particularly when it comes to their rights and entitlements. Uh, Money, working hours, meal breaks, tax. Yeah, you get to that age where that's the big one that hangs over your head for the rest of your working life. It pays for young workers and their guardians to know what a job entails. So if you have that experience, if you are a parent of someone who's heading out now to do a 10-hour day or maybe a 3-hour day and you're worried about them and you feel that maybe they're not being 
cared for or looked after or they're not actually getting what they're entitled to. Uh, let us know your experience. If you are working in that sort of environment and uh, you love it and you're working for a great boss and you're working with a great bunch of people, please let us know as well, okay? You can give us a shout, of course, Oh, eight three. Three ninety-six, ninety-six, ninety-six. I always have to look at the number behind me. I once had eyes in the back of my head, but they're gone now. Anyway, give us a shout, and of course, it's uh, opinion at ninety-six FM dot ie. If you would like to get in touch with the show today, as usual, we're here the whole way through till twelve midday, and I hope you can spend a little bit of time for us. Now, talking about going back and cherishing memories from long ago, who remembers this? Gentlemen, it's blind to date, and here is your host, Miss Scylla Black. Ah, oh, yeah. We played that yesterday, actually, in the office, and it put everybody in good humour for the day. It's just one of those, Scylla Black, like she was your auntie, wasn't she? Even though we'd, not, we'd never met her, herself and Tony, her husband. Um, and she just filled the TV screen with a Laura, Laura love and happiness and nostalgia every Saturday night. And it was just, it was prime time viewing. Now... Blind Date uh, was something we kind of touched on last week. We spoke to singletons around Cork who were telling us how difficult the dating scene uh, has become. And we first spoke to Annette, who's looking for Laura Laura Love. And here is some of our conversation with her. I'm just curious, were you the one who decided that the guy you met wasn't the right guy? Or was it the guy who decided that he didn't want to meet you again? I would say probably 50-50. Great place to meet people these days. Is at weddings. Yeah, that's probably true, yeah. Someone saying here, has Annette tried Tinder? I've never been on Tinder and I've... I've, I've, Oh, don't. Yeah. Yeah, you're fine without it. I'll go out on a limb here by saying this. I think people in their 40s, late 40s and 50s who are on Tinder, seriously, questions should be asked there, you know? But you see, the problem there, Gareth, is that from a safety point of view, you've got to be so blooming careful these days because you just don't know who you're dealing with. It doesn't matter where you meet that person, you know. You just got to have to have your safety... In, in mind probably to the forefront of your mind but you then I, I also get the feeling Ireland's own is probably not for you either there are still people looking for companionship their ads are still in in the Ireland's own but the sad fact is though Gareth I thought you know maybe I should write a letter into them and I thought Jesus and it's like you don't stop <laughs> oh, and Annette's conversation prompted a call from Danny so Danny tell me about your experience on the dating scene if I had to be truthful it's very hard for me to find somebody that's that's balanced, that knows what they want. When you say balanced, Danny, what do you mean? You mean balanced in their mind of knowing what do they want, and and it's it's actually it's actually hard to trust people. I know I'm the only one that can be trustworthy in a relationship. I can't do anything about anybody else. I heard your program, and you you were having an interview with some girl from Mallow. That was in S. And. She kind of ticked out the boxes, really, if I had to be honest, you know. Like, I'm very emotionally independent and whatever. I live on my own. I'd like to meet somebody, I suppose, that would like to go for a walk and whatever. And, you know, like, when you go walking and things like that, like, the best things in life are free. And I suppose I'd like to go for a meal with somebody and I'd have somebody that you could chat to. Yeah. But I'd like to to have someone in my life. But 
but I'd like to have his companion, not someone I don't want to be married. I was already married before. Yeah. And I'd like to have a companion, I suppose. That's what I'm saying, really. Mm, two charming people, that's for sure. During the course of the conversation, Danny asked if he could go on a date with Annette, you might remember, and if we could pass on his number to her, which we did. And Annette is on the phone right now. Good morning to you. Annette? Good morning, Gareth. How are you? I'm very well. Did that? Did, did the theme song bring back memories? It did, yeah. Did it? Just, it, you I wasn't it. expecting that. Oh, well, here we go. Have a listen to it again. Here it is. Oh, <laughs> oh. You're up in that stool there, do you know that? I <laughs> know, <laughs> yeah, that's what it's beginning to feel. <laughs> oh, yeah, I love that. Silla Black. Wow. Uh, she was staple diet yeah. telly every Saturday amazing. night. She really, really was. It's a pleasure of meeting her many she years was. back. And she was exactly in real life as she was on TV. Just a Laura Laura. Yes, yeah, so I believe. So, what's happening? What's the story? Will so you go on a date with that? Yeah, oh, did you? Yeah, we had a chat yesterday. Yeah, we did. Right. We did. I gave him a bit. Uh, sorry, I messaged him and he rang me yesterday evening. So, okay. um, so yeah, we just chatted away for a couple of minutes and I had to be in the city later on today. So we're going to meet for a cuppa before my appointment. So, yeah. Oh, wow. Well, because see, we've been inundated, literally inundated with calls and comments from people <laughs> since last week asking, did you and Danny meet up yet? But it's happening today, <laughs> is it? Yeah. It's happening today. It is indeed. Yeah, I should have. I should have spoken yesterday, but I was just. I was wrecked. Fibromyalgia is kicking my butt at the oh, moment. Sorry. So, um, I. Ah, yeah. Sure. Look, it's one of those things. So, um, yeah. So we finally got a chance to chat yesterday evening, and um, we're going to meet today. Great. So, Se- secret location. And, uh, Oh, well, I'm certainly not putting out the location on the radio, that's for sure. <laughs> There'll be a line of people at the other side of the street going, I wonder, is that her? Is that him? Yeah, L- yeah face recognition <laughs> so, no. and lip reading, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, nope. <laughs> Definitely not giving out the location. <laughs> oh, that's, just, that's lovely. Well, but you know, yeah, yeah. So looking forward to it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm no pressure. Now. We'll see how we get on. Yeah, no pressure in that, but we'd love to chat again tomorrow to see how you get on, if that's okay. Of course, of course. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because you know what we're and all I'm like. sure you'll probably get a, <laughs> you'll get a chance to chat to Danny as well. We oh, she come here like half a cork now at this stage is going, well, what's happening? What's the story? <laughs> yeah, you could get your own television show out of this one yet. <laughs> oh God, yeah, this is it. Yes, finally my chance to break into radio. Here we go, RTV. <laughs> Great to chat to you, Ned, and uh, have a lovely afternoon and tell Danny we were <clears throat> asking for him and uh, look forward I to chatting indeed. to you both hopefully tomorrow. Thank you so much. We will talk to you tomorrow. Thank you, Annette. <laughs> spoken like a Cheers, spoken like a journalist. We will talk to you tomorrow. <laughs> oh, um, I love the enthusiasm, and it's just it's wonderful. Cupid, you can't be today. It just lifts us all above the things that make us worry every day. So that's Annette and Danny, uh, who's gone down to get his hairstyle today. <laughs> And uh, it's all happening this afternoon. We'll hear more about that tomorrow. Join the conversation. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Now, mental health blogger and friend of the show, Dara Fleming, has been the victim of cyber blackmail. And he joins me now. Dara, good morning. Good morning, Gareth. How are you? This is pretty hair-raising stuff. Tell, can you tell us the story? Yeah, of course. Um, I think it, like it, it, yesterday was a very tough day, but I think it's really important to, um, I suppose, make this issue known to people so they can be on on the lookout for it. So, um, yeah, and I suppose just to context, 
contextualize it like this wasn't like a generic email scam it was it was much more targeted than that it was it was far more invasive so basically um for a couple of weeks i was chatting to what i thought was a a local woman on a, a dating app and we were chatting and that was fine um and then after a couple of weeks she uh Suggested we move to Snapchat, which isn't unusual. It wouldn't be my like first port of call, but it's not unusual. So I was like, yeah, that's fine. Here's my Snapchat, whatever. And then um, after a couple of days, uh, you know, sending pictures, she, she started to kind of sexualize the conversation a bit more. Uh, pictures were exchanged. And then once that happened, um, they sent screenshots of all the pictures, of the few pictures I'd sent, plus pictures of my social media Uh photos of my like family's profiles and then uh said that i had 10 seconds to agree to send money uh which was the it was 2000 euro they wanted uh via bitcoin uh and then my snapchat started ringing and it was the profile of the girl her uh, they were using the name tracy so if anyone's on hinge or tinder um just be wary i suppose of anyone named tracy but um so then they rang me and it was actually a man uh, and he said he was from Nigeria and that we had it really good over here in Ireland. We had nice jobs, we had loads of money so that it was almost a sort of punishment in a way. That's what it kind of felt like. And that then he started saying I needed to download an app uh, to send him the money. So at that point I hung up, I blocked him. Uh, he tried to message me on a burner account on Instagram. Uh, I blocked that one. Then about an hour later, this is about half on yesterday afternoon. He um, messaged again, tried to ring on Instagram, said he dropped the price to 500 euro, that he didn't want to ruin my life and I should just like be responsible and pay. So I blocked that account. Um, and at this point, I like, you know, the initial panic was um, like nothing I've ever experienced. It was terrifying. But um, I thought the best thing to do was kind of take it into my own hands. And that's when I put out the tweet yesterday saying, look, this is happening and being blackmailed. Uh, they have pictures of me, so those pictures might come out because I, you know, I instinctively kind of knew paying him would be the worst uh, call of action. Um, and then, just to protect my own mental health, because I think what what would happen in this situation to someone who's more vulnerable is that they wouldn't be able to talk about it and they'd keep it up on themselves and they'd have to deal with their on their deal with it on their their own. Yeah. So I talked to, uh, you know, I talked to my parents, talked to my brother, talked to a few friends, just told them what was going on, how I was feeling, and you know, yesterday was incredibly challenging uh basically because the threat of these pictures being sent to my family was around all day but i mean nothing has happened yet that doesn't mean nothing will happen it could still happen but um i suppose the challenge and i reported it to the guards uh, hotline.e have a thing with the guards we report these incidents online uh, unfortunately i don't think anything will be able to be done because uh you know the perpetrator disclosed that he's in nigeria so i don't think we can do anything but at the same time i think it's very important to um to still report it because that will make the stats more accurate which means the guardian might get more funding to actually do something about these types of cases because it is very serious and it's becoming rampant in ireland mm. um it's happened to a lot of young men in particular um and it's it's honestly like just from personal experience yesterday really really tough on the mental health like yeah. um these, know, these, were, these were naked pictures you were you you exchanged yeah yeah and um, this this woman who called herself tracy did she did she send you naked pictures of her 
Yeah, yeah. So it was very much like because we've been like typically like on a dating app, and I don't really use them that often. So it's only been the last month or so. But um, chatting, uh, and then you know you get a rapport, and then Snapchat's a, a picture sharing um, messenger. So it was like a lot of selfies, and then she started sending. She started sexualizing it. Started sending kind of more. I suppose spicy pictures, yeah. naked pictures, uh, and it all felt very genuine and real, which is the scariest part. Like because it just seemed like a normal person that I would talk to in court that you might bump into, and then it was it was a complete another uh, catfish fraud that turned into blackmailing. Like yeah, and a complete head wreck. Yeah, like uh, yesterday was like easily one of the most stressful days of my entire life, and like. You know, there there is an element of shaming that goes on. Like this is obviously extremely embarrassing, um, but for me, I think you know, as someone who talks openly about mental health, I mean, if I don't talk about the the mental health aspects on the bad days and only talk about it on the good days, I'm not doing my job. So I think mm. you know, talking about it is essential because this isn't just happening to me. This is happening to hundreds, if not thousands, of people, and a lot of people won't be able to handle it. It's it's resulted in suicide across the globe in different scenarios so it is a very very serious uh, issue and at the moment there's there's not a lot to be done about it um so for me like that's why it was like the only power i had i didn't have any control over the pictures anymore but the only power i had was to kind of get ahead of it and i was like look this is happening it's a disaster uh you might all see my todger at some point in the next yeah. few weeks so i, um, I remember um <clears throat> many years back when I was a psychotherapist. One of the things I always said to individuals who came to me who were in this roller coaster of catastrophizing, because it's it's it's, it's you're catastrophizing at the speed of a, a Formula One car. And mm-hmm. my, my question to you, just to calm you down, would be: Right, the images are put up online. What's the worst thing that can happen? And yeah, no, that's re- like, yeah. I, I, realistically, when you sit back from it, you think to yourself, "Well, okay." I haven't done any harm to anybody and they're there or they might not be there. But, you know, I still have my life. I'm still me and, you know, I accept that this is what has happened. But I, I presume the fact that he hasn't contacted you even after reducing the asking price, that's a that's a positive sign. Yeah, like uh, from, from the way he was like, and it was, he kept saying like, so in that, like, the last message I got from him, he was like, the video is uploading now. So he obviously made a video of various screenshots and was like, this is your last chance. I'll reduce it to 500, do the right thing, uh, which I ignored and he didn't see that I saw. So it was like, yeah, it was a case of, like, he was trying to just get something from me. And I imagine this is a scam firm. Mm. You know, it's probably like he probably had hundreds of people on the go at once and you just kind of play the numbers game because some people will pay. Um and once I was kind of very rigid and uh, reluctant to pay, I'd say it was just, you know, it's more it's more time than it's worth. Because, like, when he was on the phone to me, I was very kind of belligerent with him. I was like, send him to my mom if you want. Like, I don't care. She's not going to care. Like, we have a good relationship. She's not, She's going to know to delete it. Like, so I was like, send him to my mom. Like, you can do what you want. I was like, the worst thing you can do in those situations is give in to them because... I mean, once you give them the money, they're not going to stop asking for money and it's just going to be a, yeah. a cycle of... Yeah. And then somebody else gets the photographs. And I, I, I'm kind of thinking to myself here that the photographs of this woman called Tracy, she's probably in a similar situation. She's being blackmailed for cash possibly too. Yeah, yeah, I, I imagine so. Like, And there's probably going to be a case of my pictures are going to be used to 
scam someone else. Um, and that's unfortunate. Um, but like, you know, there's, there's not much I can do. Those pictures are out yeah. there now. And I, I think it like, you know, um, it is, it, it, it has been a massive learning moment for me. Like, um, sending those pictures is in- incredibly stupid. <laughs> and just, you know, but it, it, it's because like, I think that you think you're talking to someone you can trust. Yeah. That's a real person that you've, you've developed a rapport with. And then, um, it turns out not to be who you thought it was, which is quite terrifying. Well, I like your attitude. Uh, at the end of the message, you say, so if you see images of me somewhere, enjoy them, I guess. And that's, I think that's something that you've got to take home with you, that that has got to be your attitude. Okay, I did it. It was a mistake and I've learned from it, but it's not going to ruin my life. And I think by, yeah, like, by you know, talking I, to I, me I, this I, morning, Dara, I think there are so many people who might be listening, possibly in the same situation, who would be further down a suicidal ideation route. So maybe you're giving them, you know, hope and they can take back their power listening to you this morning. Well, yeah, that that is the hope that like, you know, and that's why I try to like come at mental health with that kind of disposition generally. Like I, I tweeted again last night being like, I actually kind of feel grateful because my biggest concern at the moment is that a few people close to me might see my Mickey. And if that's my biggest concern, then my life is actually not yeah. too bad. Like that's my biggest concern, a little bit of embarrassment. Um, so like it is very much like, this is like ideally, in an ideal world, this isn't happening, but it is happening. It's out of my control. You just kind of have to roll with the punches and hopefully, I mean, if as you said, if it does happen, if they do send out the pictures, it happens, we move on. Uh, people don't and won't care about it as much as I care about it. It'll just be a kind of momentary, oh, Jesus, look at that, and they'll move on. It won't be a, a huge scandal. And I think that's the important thing, as you said, with catastrophizing, like, no one is going to care about it as much as I'm afraid they'll care about it. Yeah. So it's just to, to keep rolling, keep moving. Yeah, and I think, as you say there correctly, I, I think for men particularly, <clears throat> excuse me, who find themselves in this unfortunate situation, the one thing they're worried about, they're not worried about their pecs or their biceps, it's, it's about their manhood, it's about their penis, and they're thinking, um, will mine be smaller than his, or will women look at me and think, less of me because now they can see this but th- that's once again it's all part of that catastrophizing it it means nothing mm-hmm. in the real world the, can i recently no, you, no. you recently put this up on twitter uh, and if it's okay with you i want to just um uh, read it interestingly and this is dara on twitter recently interestingly there's been some shaming today by men and women about my personal nude gate now 95 percent of people have been extremely supportive but the shaming is surprising given the world we live in and given that's what's been threatened uh, is sexual assault it's a very valid tweet mm-hmm. how did you feel yeah, it- how did you feel when you wrote it and posted it um it was just it was just surprising because and it's in particular the, the the shaming elements from women i think based on like you know the last few years we've had her in like me too and i believe her and you know are in the serious nature of sexual assault and i was getting a lot of messages like from close friends and also just kind of randomers on twitter being like why did you send the pictures did you actually send pictures did you not think that there was something up with this person that you're sending pictures to and it was all very shaming and kind of yeah victim blaming as if this is my fault that it happened like it, it's absolutely not my fault it's it's something i thought i was sharing pictures with someone i could trust they turned out to be not the person they said they were like that's not my fault 
No. Uh, and it just felt very shaming. And I, th- I don't think, you know, in, in my head, if it, was, if it was a woman in the same situation, I don't think we'd be asking those questions. And if someone did ask those questions, they'd be blown out of it for even suggesting that this might be the woman's fault. So I just think there's a, a little bit of a double standard there. And that was kind of interesting and surprising to see. But, I mean, surprising in that, yeah, like in the world we live in, but ultimately not unexpected. Um, there's still a lot of stigmatizing and shaming um, attitudes in Ireland. So like not unexpected, but I just didn't think it would be as common as it turned out to be. Mm. But then <clears throat> I'm also reminded that there are people who love to go to nudist beaches on their annual holidays and parade up and down the beach wearing absolutely mm. nothing. So I, I sometimes think that when the catastrophizing can hit you and it can hit you unexpectedly, it can blindside you. It may be, it might be worth reminding yourself that you've actually done nothing wrong. Yeah, no, that's it. Like I, I yeah. haven't. It's it, like it was like this might happen just because I was doing the modern version of dating like that's this is what dating is in the modern world all online like that's all i was doing i was doing what every other young person does and it just turned out that there was a a sinister uh individual uh trying to make money off of someone else's vulnerability which is absolutely and that's very to me that's exactly why i talk about it it's exactly why i will talk about it why i told them to to run it like they're not getting money off me because like trying to exploit someone for their vulnerability is absolutely corrupt and evil and I will will never like bow down to it mm. um because that's like you know there's an aspect like I'm a mental health advocate I'm a role model for uh, some people like I need I need to lead by example and be like, I can't mm. tell people that you should pay and, and and be shamed by these people because it'll, it'll never stop it will never stop. Yeah. It'll keep coming. But see, you're you're a wonderful advocate here because the message you're saying, the message you're giving is don't pay the ransom, you know? And mm-hmm. and if you almost have to look in the mirror and put on uh, Liam Neeson's character's voice when he says, you know, I will find you and when I find you, <laughs> I will kill you. <laughs> Not meaning to, to I suppose comicalize the whole thing but sometimes we become so entrenched in that catastrophizing that we're destroying ourselves when really we need to kind of open the window and look in a big mirror and say you're still an amazing bloke you've done nothing wrong you mm-hmm. you haven't hurt anybody um and sometimes i think and we're going to be talking about you know internet trolling and that a little later and, and how severe and serious it can get um, but I, I think people saying to you online, why did you put up the pictures? Did you really put up these pictures? What were you thinking? Just block them or just ignore them, you know, because mm-hmm. it's it's all down to your your individuality here. And we learn by making mistakes. That's my that's my philosophy. I've made some awful mistakes in my life. One of them, I, I became quite suicidal after making it. And mm-hmm. then I realized... Three or four, six months later, God, why was I worrying so much about it? It was gone. And I, I think that's the message you're putting out there in your own unique way. And I think it's a marvelous message. Well, I, I really appreciate it. And I think, yeah, like at the end of the day, um, there's something to be learned for me personally and for like people as a whole who've seen this story that to just be careful. And uh, But if these things do happen, which they inevitably do, it isn't the end of the world. Um, don't don't pay 
the the exploiter and uh, as I, as I said in that tweet 99% of people have been incredibly supportive people have reached out my family has been supportive I feel a lot close it's weird like I feel a lot closer with my family and my friends who have talked to like there is a a huge element of support and feeling safe and I think that's huge especially in a situation where I was made to feel unsafe yeah that for the most part people are incredibly supportive and that that is something to be hopeful about yeah and can I wish you all the best with uh, your debut in non-fiction. It's a collection of essays on mental health called Lonely Boy, which is a fantastic title. Reminds me of an old Andrew Gold song, which was a huge hit in the 1970s, <laughs> Lonely Boy. Great song. Dara, listen, it's great to I chat to you live. and uh, have a good day. And remember, uh, today was probably, or yesterday was probably the worst day ever. Uh, Mm-hmm. And it won't get any worse. Believe me, it, it it can only get better from here on in. So have a good day today. Thanks a million, Gary. I appreciate it. Yeah, great to talk to you. Great guy. And uh, um, yeah, kind of makes me sort of re- realise that there are some great people in the world and they're not afraid to own up to the fact that, okay, sometimes they find themselves in a mess that they've created themselves. But at the end of the day, he hasn't hurt anybody else. Um, and I think... Sometimes in a situation like this, it might be easy to think I'm hurting other people's feelings. Uh, remember, what other people think about you is none of your business. You have to concentrate on how you feel about yourself. And uh, I'm so glad he came on and talked to us today because I have a feeling, I have a hunch, there might be a lot of people listening who find themselves in that situation and hopefully they can glean some strength and some hope and some courage having listened to Dara's story. Uh, his collection of essays again on mental health well worth reading it's called lonely boy lots of comments about dara uh lots of very very um supporting comments as well dara and i know you're tuned in a lot of people saying well done because talking out like this as you did this morning will help so many people and everybody thinks you're a a pretty cool guy so uh take that with you as you start the day today Just thought you might like to know that in 2021, the Harassment, Harmful Communications and Related Offences Act, bit of a mouthful but a very important act known as COCO's Law was introduced in Ireland. It criminalised the distribution of intimate images without consent. It introduced a jail term of up to seven years for the offence and updated pre-existing harassment legislation. COCO's Law, C-O-C-O, COCO's Law, if you want to check it out, you can read up on it more online. 0833 96 96 96 for your texts and WhatsApp messages. Join the conversation. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Coach 96 FM. John has called the show. He has been living in the Travel Lodge Hotel for over two years and wanted to tell us his story. Good morning to you, John. Morning. How are you? I'm fine. Tell me about you. What is what has the last two years been like? Well, I suppose the only way to describe it is it's been very hard. Obviously, like do you know what I mean. No, I'm lucky in the sense that I've been in, in the the travel lodge and not anywhere else, like a hostel or a B and B, or you know what I mean. But to actually come to that stage now, you know, um, the two years were very hard. Obviously, like you can't cook for yourself, you can't do washing. You know what I mean. It's, it's just very hard like in general do you know what I mean it has its points and has <clears throat> has a lot of negatives you know what I mean a lot of people would think oh it's grand it's a hotel can't be complaining but it's hard like when you're defined to a room do you know what I mean you're unemployed and you're defined to a room do you know that kind of way you're trying to make the best of your situation and it's just so as every avenue that you try and go to then like 
like you'd be trying to get the council to refer you to different sources. Do you know what I mean? Like Coa Hose and then Focus Ireland and stuff and the referrals they don't happen. Do you know what I mean? Like it's just it's crazy, like um, Wait, when you say confined to a room, what do you mean? I mean, when you're unemployed and stuff like that, do you yeah. know what I mean? No, I do go out and I go walking and I meet up with friends and I go out and do things too, like obviously, but <clears throat> when you're homeless, you're kind of, you're like, that's the only word I can put it, confined to your room, do you know what I mean? Because where else is there to go on the summer time you can go out and about, like, but other than that, when you're homeless and you're unemployed, what are you going to do, walk around town, do you know what I mean? Hmm. And, and how do you eat? Where, where do you get your food? To be honest with you, most days I just go in town, I walk into town or I, I call to my mans or, you know, or I call to a friend's house or something, do you know, that kind of way, like, just have to make the best of what you can do, like, do you know, sometimes I go into the penny dinners or, mm. do you know what I mean? Can you not stay with your mum, no? No, I can't, not, unfortunately, I can't, there's not enough room there, like, and, there's not enough room anywhere else, really. I tried other family members and stuff, but sure. They all have their own homes and families, you know what I mean? But does your mother... I can't, like, you know what I mean? Does your mother worry about you? She does, yeah. She And she's worried now for that now. Like, she's worried that she can't... She can't help me, like, do you know what I mean? She, like, is she the place to put me? She would, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But she can't, like, you know? Um... Can you go back to the room any time you want? Can you spend the afternoon there, or is there a precise time that you can get back there and that? You yeah, well, in in travel, lad, yeah, you can stay in the room. There's kind of no, there's no curfew kind of thing there, or there's no, you know, in and out regulations and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, or that's yeah, just I suppose confined to the room. Or that's what I, that's the kind of way I put it. Like, you're not confined to the room either, but. Yeah. <clears throat> when you're unemployed and you're depressed, so when you think of options, you kind of run yourself into a hole and end up staying in bed all day, kind of thing. Do you know that kind of way? Have you television? Like, yeah, there's a small telly in the room. There's four or five channels. Do you know that kind of way? But I, I tend not to even watch the telly. Do you know that kind of way? No. I put it on, have a bit of background, background noise, like, you know mm. what I mean? But, but uh, yeah, <clears throat> I'm gone from there now, like, so looking for places to go there it's really hard like you know what I mean where, where are you <clears> now where, to go, like. where are you now John I the last two nights there now I stayed in a, a car like you know, a friend of mine's car right. he actually borrowed, borrowed me the car like he can't bring me like he has three kids of his own you know in a two bedroom house they're also struggling you know that kind of way so he just I have one or two bags in his house like just where, where I can put my stuff you know but other than that then like just uh I sleeping in the car for the last two nights. They offered me the the Vincent's to get me no other choice but to move out of the travel lodge. When I asked them what the reason was for moving out, was that my time was up there. Hmm. So, have you slept on the streets? Oh, what? No. Uh, I didn't. I didn't yet, but I'm afraid I have to. Like, you know what I mean? I'm afraid that it comes to that stage. Like, no, they offered me St. Vincent's, but to be honest with you, like. I know people will say a bed to bed, go in there, you know. But like, I don't. I've I I've never su- I've suffered with addiction, or I've never suffered with alcoholism or drugs, or. And I've I've heard on the radio before from people's personal accounts about the instance, and I've seen pictures put up on 
there in social media websites and all this kind of stuff. People sharing their experiences like and it's horrible. Like I went in there last week for an assessment on Friday and I was gobsmacked, like do you know what I mean? Like I like you're being exposed to drugs, like you know what I mean? You're being exposed to needles, you're being exposed to paraphernalia or whatever you wanna say, you know, like in a way, like and they're just no, no, I know these people are suffering too, like, do you know what I mean? Mm. And the staff are saying, oh, there'll be plenty of help in there for you and all that kind of stuff. So, but like, oh, you know, it's hard to say, like, it's hard to even, uh, it's hard even to take it in, do you know what I mean? That they're being put into a place like that. I'm, I'm quite capable of living in an apartment, a little one-bit apartment or a one-bit house or one-bit bungalow after they do that, do you know what I mean? Hmm. I'm finding it even hard to get back into environment, but the way your, the way your mental health would be, and the way your your outlook would be even be, you know that kind of way. How is your mental health? It's stable, you know that kind of way. Stable, like that's all I could say, really. Like, and obviously suffering with depression and anxiety and social deprivation and stuff like that. Like, but but not. I just I don't. I'm lucky. I'm strong enough in my own mind. You know that kind of way. And what gives you the strength to carry that, to deal with it? At the moment, to be quite honest with you, I'm telling you all I use, I left my dad seven months ago. That's what keeps me going. Just I just want to stay strong for him like, and do the best I can. You know? Thanks for talking to us, John. Yeah, yeah no matter. You're welcome. Take care. Thanks a lot. That's John, um, harrowing, even more harrowing because realistically it could be any of us at any stage in our lives, you know, things can be going so well for so long and then suddenly everything literally just falls off the edge of a cliff and we wish John the best, some of you just texting in to say, please God, things get better for him and uh, that's the way we feel as well. Now, um, podcasting is the, the water cooler topic for so many people at the moment podcasting is the new broadcasting many people say and um, anyone who's anyone uh, who has a reputation or who has a profile they tend to turn to their own form of prod, of podcast broadcasting uh, so with that in mind have a listen to this <laughs> Welcome to a special podcast series with Dr. Mark Henry, author of the book, In Fact, An Optimist's Guide to Ireland at 100. Mark and I will have a chat about the quality of life in Ireland today through the lens of issues that impact us all, such as the economy, uh, education and well-being uh, and health. And of course, the many challenges that face us in terms of climate change, biodiversity, housing and the cost of living. There you are now. I'd want to watch my job, wouldn't I? That's for sure. They're always snapping at your heels in this business. There he is, the, t- the, the, the well, former teacher, Tónista, uh, Michal Martin of this parish, and uh, that's his brand new podcast. And um, there's lots of stuff in the papers about it today. Uh, he's kind of well used to being on the receiving end of questions, uh, but now he's pretty much set the agenda uh, during the Doyle Summer Recess to actually get into podcasting. And in that first episode of his podcast, In Conversation with Michal Martin, the Tarnished Speaks with Dr. Mark Henry, author of In Fact, An Optimist's Guide to Ireland at 100, to discuss how Ireland has developed since the foundation of the state. And I just thought, fair play, um, 
He's got some good competition, though. Uh, Mary Coughlin, the singer, has also lo- launched her podcast uh, with fellow Irish singer-songwriter Olton Conlon yesterday called You're Not Listening, <laughs> which is kind of a rather appropriate title for a politician's podcast. But anyway, uh, good luck to the Tawnishta, and I was listening to it actually there this morning. Uh, fairly enjoyable stuff, um, and I'm sure he'll he'll get into the swing of things very, very quickly. Uh, pleasant voice. Uh, we've got a very serious podcast we're going to be talking about a little later. If you've been trolled online, uh, it's something that will certainly interest you. Uh, but you can get in touch with us, as I say, this morning on 0833 96 96 96. Gareth O'Callaghan here on the Opinion Line this morning. We're here with you through until uh, next Tuesday included is the Tuesday. We're also here. PJ's back on the Wednesday of next week. I'd love to hear your comments. If you've seen Barbie the movie, uh, what you thought of the movie? Was it funny? Was it degrading for men? As you heard uh, the, the review there in the 10 o'clock news on the, uh, uh, I don't know, was it David Quinn or David Coleman? I'm not sure. We'll check on it anyway. Uh, where he described the movie as uh, um, emasculated eye candy himbos. He was referring to the men in the movie. Ryan Gosling playing Ken. Um, a himbo, by the way, is a good-looking but unintelligent young man. <laughs> so, <laughs> far be it for me to uh, define it, but I um, haven't heard that word ever before. A himbo, H-I-M-B-O. Uh, Ken, who's played by Ryan Gosling, uh, that reviewer said uh, it was just basically full of emasculated eye candy himbos. Uh, I wouldn't waste my money on it, I'm sorry. I'm up for a laugh and I, I, I love the old enchantment of the cinemas and that. Takes you away from it's kind of, a, it's, it's the greatest form of big screen escapism, isn't it? But uh, now, Barbie the movie definitely not. Oppenheimer now would be my sort of movie, but if you saw Barbie the movie let us know what you thought and uh, if you thought that Ken was a bit of a himbo. Now, uh, some of your comments coming in on our blind date. Our blind date, a piece earlier on, uh, one caller says, Gareth, today is Scylla Black's anniversary. Oh, wow. Wow. So I'm sure she's smiling down on Annette and Danny. Um, I didn't know that. Isn't that uncanny? What a brave guy. Well done, Dara. That's from John. We were talking to Dara earlier on, currently being blackmailed by someone who has naked images of him and uh, is asking him for €2,000. It's been dropped now to 500 but he hasn't heard anything else and hopefully won't. Uh, I have a son Dara's age. It's a scary world out there, says Annie. Yes, indeed it is. And I wouldn't like to be that age again. Kate, well, There's another dinosaur statement. Kate says, what a fantastic guy highlighting what happened to him to warn others despite the obvious embarrassment that might cause him. Uh, Marie says, God, fair play to this guy talking about what happened to him on a dating app. Well done. Um, Maeve says, in relation to Annette and Danny's date, she says, I'm so excited for them. Well, we all are, and hopefully we'll have a a great uh, bit of chat with two of them tomorrow morning here on the show. 0833 96 96 96 is our number for your text messages and WhatsApp messages. Last week, as we mentioned on the show, the government brought in free IVF treatment for certain sectors of society. As a couple of our callers said, it's a very expensive business. Cork woman Helen Brown once had to sell her car to fund her IVF and she joins us on the line right now. Good morning, Helen. Good morning, Gareth. How are you? I'm fine and I'm delighted to talk to you this Good. morning. How long ago is this? It's, it's, uh, it... oh, do I really want to tell you? <laughs> <laughs> if you like. <laughs> I was just going to say to you that it's obviously not recently, but it's, it's something no. that you still remember. 
Oh gosh, yes, I yeah. do indeed. Because it would have taken twelve. Eight, we would have taken seven years out of ten years of our marriage. Right. And I suppose for us that I knew that I could have difficulty conceiving because I had been diagnosed with a condition called endometriosis. Yeah. So, uh, so we kind of went on the journey. I went for investigations and I had surgery. Uh, which wasn't successful, and then I had no choice but to go for IVF. So that really was about a year, year and a half, two years after we got married. So the journey took over our marriage. Do you know what I mean? It really mm-hmm. took over. Like, I was obsessed with it. I, I mean, I was, I, you know, all I wanted was to be a mom. I always wanted to be a mom. I come from a family of of the seven siblings and I'm used to kind of noise in the house and activity and all this. And I wanted to have that. I wanted to have three to four children. And um, and like that now when you're when you're young, late twenties, early thirties, you just automatically presume that you're going to get pregnant. I knew that I would have difficulty, but I did think it would work after the first attempt. Mm. And uh, and it didn't. And that was absolutely devastating. But like that now, they had they normally just treat you with the lower doses initially because they don't know how your body's going to respond to it. So it's kind of a learning curve for the first cycle. And then the second cycle, they had twerked my medication a bit and I was 100% sure it was going to work. I was so positive. Yeah. And the, 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 uh, re- the reason I asked you yeah. how long ago it was, Helen, is I'm just wondering how familiar you were with IVF. Was it as widely spoken about? And where was the. No. It, what, no, no, right, okay. No, no. I had nobody talk, to speak to. I there was, When I went, and you can do your calculation and your maths yourself, <laughs> <Okay>. Carrot, <laughs> uh, there was only one clinic in Ireland. All oh, right. Okay. And that was the Harvey. And then soon after, then there was two clinics, but lo- there's loads of clinics now. But anyway, nobody spoke about it. And that's why after the second failed treatment, that's when I, I rang the maternity hospitals around Ireland to ask them, was there a support group? I really needed to speak to somebody I, I did go for counseling and I knew I said no this is not for me I really wanted to connect with other people who knew exactly what I was going through and there wasn't anything and that's when I decided to set up the group and we started in Cork initially and then and we had the 021 number and then um um, Michael Noonan was Minister of Health and he gave us the money and we had a 1890 number. Now that'll tell you how far back we're yeah. going. Well, and Michael Noonan is the, yeah, he was the Minister for Health at that stage, wasn't he? At that time when he gave us some money for, to have a 1890 number oh, right. uh, so people could ring from around Ireland and the only local call yeah. and then all that went when the mobiles came but uh, so then we kind of became national because we were getting calls from Donegal from Kerry we were getting calls from the islands even you know people saying gosh going to mass and they're all we know that they're looking at us because we don't have children horrendous yeah. and uh, yeah like but now I suppose now and they're they didn't know what the IVF journey was about and they kind of didn't know what was ahead. Whereas now the clinics have educational days and, you know, you have um, programs on television, documentaries, and it's in the media quite a bit now. So it's not it's not as scary as um, it was years ago. I remember vividly uh, 
when I think it was Louise Brown became the first yes. Uh, yes. woman to receive IVF treatment. And it was, I, I, I never liked that stone. expression. Remember the test tube baby expression that the, yeah. the tabloids yeah. used? Yeah. Um, yeah. It was yeah. such a revolution for for. for parents but particularly for women because um the, the, there can be nothing more heartbreaking in many ways than to be told by a doctor you can't conceive that you can't have children yeah yeah it's 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 horrendous it's kind of you know it's a it's a death of motherhood it's a death yeah. of parenthood parents and even though like a lot of the focus is on the female, the males suffer big time as well. And uh, yeah, it is it's horrendous because I remember after finishing all my treatment because I was just so physically, mentally, emotionally and financially exhausted. Yeah. And I remember going to a counsellor. I said, this is it. I have to go to a counsellor to get kind of the tools and how to cope with when people say to me, oh, you don't have children or why don't you have children and all this. And the tools and how to fit into society that is very family orientated, the tools and how to cope with the fact of I will be missing out on all the milestones in life, like christening and Holy Communion and confirmation and, you know, weddings and all, and grandchildren. I'd be missing out on all that in life, which is, and all my friends would be going through it and I wouldn't be going through it, which was pretty frightening. Yeah. And I remember when I went to him and um, I just said, do you know what? I really think I need Prozac. I'm just in a black hole and I just need a help to get out of it. I'm just so depressed. And he said, you're not depressed. And I just said to him, look at me. I'm a basket case. Mm. And he said, no, you're not. You're not depressed. He said, you're grieving. You are grieving the loss of motherhood. And that was the first time that the word grief was used. Wow. So, so accurate yeah. too, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. So like that now we would have had um, like with the um, the program about at least with the uh, Stephen Donnelly uh, with the um, paying for the treatment or covering the cost of IVF treatment. I think it is like we've been fighting for this for years, uh, not fighting, but Nigos trying to ch ch chatting to the all the ministers of health over the years, and we think this is absolutely wonderful. Is it enough? No. But it's a start. Yes. And he's willing to widen the parameters as time goes on. Next year, they'll be kind of sitting down and chatting to it. And, you know, like, we, infertility has been, has been diagnosed as a disease by the World Health Organization. All diseases are covered, mm. either privately or through medical cards. So, naturally, like, we feel that people who have fertility issues you know, should be able to get, um, should be covered uh, for their treatment. And but is it... Sorry, Helen, I was going to ask you, how do you feel about the age restrictions where women over the age of 41, men over the age of 60, are, they're yeah. exempted, they're, they're, they're not considered? Yeah. Well, I think that the most important thing is uh, there's a, a, a blood test that you can do on females, which is called the AMH. And the AMH will let you know the quality of the eggs. Mm -hmm. So people who are 41, 42, their AMH, yes, it does drop as you get older, but they, they can be women who are 41, 42, whose AMH would be okay to go for IVF treatment. So I think, you know, 
it's very, very, very difficult to kind of tick all the boxes. So this is the start. Yes, he may kind of look to see what the AMH is because, you know, when you get older, your egg quality uh, diminishes a little bit. And, you know, I know people who have begged clinics begged them to do one cycle of IVF because they really felt that they was hoping the clinics would have said, we're only taking your money and they have begged them and they would have gone and they didn't become pregnant. And I would know people who would have had gone at 39, 40 years of age to for IVF treatment would have been successful and conceived naturally after that. So you never know. You you have a, a beautiful, optimistic way about you. I, you're filled with hope. I can hear it in your voice. And I, I, I can only imagine that comes from the years and years uh, of, of, of working in this whole area, not just working, but based on your own experience. I'm thinking back mm. to how different society was back then when you started investigating IVF. Was mm. there anyone you had to talk to? Well, I think, uh, yeah, no, there there really wasn't. But I do remember, I do remember um, the Catholic Church was against IVF treatment. I remember that. And I remember that he couldn't even, like you, like, and I would have heard this, I wouldn't wouldn't have been the only person feeling this, but there would be other members that would say at meetings that you're nearly afraid to pray for success. And... um, and I remember my mom had a very good friend who was a nun. And I remember speaking to her, God rest her soul. I remember speaking to her. And I remember saying this to her. And I remember also saying to her, I'm so angry against God. I said, I'm so angry when I read articles about how children are abused, neglected. I just get so angry. And she said, that's his job, Helen, be angry with him. Yeah. And she said, I can't see God, she said, ever, ever, ever denying anybody uh, to have children, however they're going to conceive it, you know. What a wonderful, uh, what a wonderful attitude. Yeah. Yeah. She was amazing. Mm. And I had to go to somebody who was religious at that time. I had to. And uh, no, she did. She saved me really. And she allowed me to get angry against God, because I couldn't be angry against the clinics because they're trying their best. Mm. I couldn't be angry against anybody really. So I had to kind of vent out on somebody. And she said, go ahead. Yeah. Wow. What an extraordinary woman. Mm. Yes, she was. It's amazing. Helen, it's, it's been a joy to talk to you and thanks for joining us. I, I just want to say that you run the National Infertility Support and Information Group and your website is nisig.com. I, nisig.com. No, yeah, and, I, yeah, and NIS, the email is yeah. nisig.com mm-hmm. and the email is contact at nisig.com and the mobile number to contact 24-7 is, is me mm-hmm. and that's 08779. 75058 and if I cannot take the call I will always return it You're a treasure Helen, thanks for talking to us Thanks Gareth Take care, thank you What a wonderful woman um, God, I could talk to Helen Brown all day, that's for sure That's Helen Brown uh, The National in, National Infertility Support and Information Group, the website is nisig.com and the email address is contact at nisig.com and the 24-7 helpline which is Helen's phone number wow 087 797 5058 087 797 5058
58. And uh, on the podcast later, if you're listening back, we'll give you that number again. Evaluating whether a woman is eligible for a free round of IVF in a new state scheme based on her age and body mass index are, quote, rather crude cut-off criteria. Uh, that's according to Labour Senator Marie Sherlock, who joins me on the line right now. Good morning to you, Senator. Good morning to you, Gareth, and to all your listeners. Nice to talk to you. I, I'm just wondering, we've been talking an awful lot about this this week. There's a lot of anticipation. There's a, there's a lot of, of disagreeing and there's a lot of, I suppose, a lot of criteria whether or not people are eligible that a lot of people are very confused and also very upset by. How do you feel about it? Well, I think the first thing to say is that those of us uh, who've been campaigning for many years, and I know that there are people as well waiting many years themselves personally for the introduction of publicly funded IVF. It is a really momentous occasion. It is really wonderful that we finally are going to have it in this country from this September. So I think, you know, to, to start on a very positive note, this is a really welcome breakthrough after many years of campaigning. And, and look, we accept that, you know, in designing any scheme that there will always be, you know, I, I suppose uh, issues to be teased out. But certainly to us, in terms of some of the criteria set down, I think we do have a concern. And, and in particular, relating to both weight or body mass index and age. Like, ultimately, if anybody's to walk into a private clinic in the morning, they're going to evaluate you on, on a whole of health assessment, as opposed to what I would consider to be two very crude measures. So you don't even get through the front door of the, the publicly funded IVF scheme based on your, you know, if you happen to be older, 41 or older, or your body mass index is is, is thirty plus. Well, so, so, yeah, and can I just say I, this? Something I'm thinking here: um, a woman who is quite anxious about the whole prospect of of being evaluated for IVF and having medical checkups, and to be told that you failed to be included based on your body mass index—that's almost an insult. Well, look, I think the thing is, there's there's obviously. Um, the, the rate of success of getting pregnant, you know, depends on a vast number of factors. And, 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 and weight is, is a part of that, but it's not absolute, right? There are people who are, you know, um, considered to be clinically obese who get mm. pregnant, and there are people who have no weight issues at all who can't get pregnant. So I think this is the thing. There's no black and white or set rules here as to who can or cannot get pregnant. And, and it depends on a whole variety of factors. And, and in particular, when we look at the, some of the conditions associated with infertility, like PCOS, um, they are on average associated with uh, a higher BMI. Now, not in every circumstance, but they can often um, be associated with a higher BMI. So I think we need to look at, you know, why some, I think we need to be mindful of that when we look at BMI um, and why some people find themselves uh, dealing with infertility issues and why others do not. So, so that to me is why BMI and both age are crude, particularly when we look at the UK. Um, I, you know, I, my understanding there is that they consider women up to the age of 43. Mm. Um, and, and of course, in other countries, there's no age limit at all. The other important thing to say, of course, is that for, for women in particular, it's not the biological age that matters. It's actually your the age of your, uh, you know, your ovarian reserve. So you could have a woman who's 35 with an extremely low ovarian reserve or you could have a woman who's 45 with a very high ovarian reserve and again that all you know makes a big difference in terms of 
who can and cannot get pregnant or how easy or otherwise it is to get pregnant. I, I would have thought that age is is very important in the sense that um, many women who go forward hoping to become pregnant to become pregnant by IVF would be in their early to mid 40s possibly their later 40s and also in the sense that if a woman meets an older man perhaps second time round looking for love and looking for a marriage that will be successful and a, a marriage that will bring children to, to, to the, the, the home um, 60 is a very, very 60, 61 is still a very young age for a man yeah well I think the difference uh, you know the, the contrast is quite stark that the cut off point for a woman is under 41 and for a man is 60 so I think that does need to be noted yeah. but look, the thing is I'm, I'm not I'm not a medic right I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert by any matter of means although obviously I, I think you know some of us know more about the whole sector relative to others because of our own personal experiences and I think the thing is um, when it comes to infertility that there are no hard and fast rules of course there are probabilities associated with age and, and there's no doubt that the older a woman is uh, the probability does decline but again like that's looking at you know the average woman and 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 and, and, and no one person meets the average there's obviously a combination of factors across a range of women that make up an average so so i think we just need to you know i suppose to me um you know some of the uh, criteria could have been much more rounded could have allowed a whole of health assessment and indeed could have could have been i suppose it could have given more leeway with regards to age and do you think it will be rolled out in september well, we're told by the minister that it will be September. It might not be the first of September, but it will definitely be September, and that is certainly to be welcomed. Now, I think it's important to say as well that this is going to be rolled out through private clinics to start with, and there'll be a public clinic next year. We've been critical of that, and that we believe that the government should have got their act together. They've known yeah. for quite a period of time now that you know they, they were going to be rolling this out, so it should be rolled out through you know our publicly our public health system, as opposed to having to rely or the state having to pay private clinics. Um, to deliver this service but look you know I look forward to a time where it'll be delivered within the public health service Right while I have you on and I think you know what I'm about to ask you about uh, this is in relation to the Oireachtas hearings and your investigation into the payments the hidden payments scandal in RTE Uh, RTE have told us that there has been a major drop in the number of people renewing and buying television licences during the month of June are you surprised? Yeah, and I've seen those figures, and they are concerning. Um, and I think the message very much needs to go out that if people do value, you know, public service broadcasting, then you know, then we need to support that through our, our life. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, thirty six percent better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. License fee. Um, 
we've said for the past number of weeks now that it's not good enough for the discussion on the licence fee reform um, or indeed the funding of RTE to be put put off until next year to, for the CAD to be kicked down the road. RTE would be facing uh, you know, a funding crisis this year like it did last year um, and indeed may be looking at a bigger crisis this year or a bigger deficit this year because of the fall off in licence. So it is absolutely vital that A, we have strong government messaging with regards to people paying their licence fee, but B, also that we actually um, ensure that there's a plan in place now for the reform of the collection of the licence fee. Because, you know, it's important to say there was a future media commission appointed um, three years three years ago now. It, it reported last year there were 50 recommendations and the government rejected one of those recommendations. It accepted 49, but it rejected one which is with regards to the financing or the funding of public service broadcasting. The, the expert group wanted to move to a a, a, a situation where the government would fund public service broadcasting directly, um, whereas the government have decided that they want to hold on to the licence fee. And if they have decided that, and we have to, you know, abide by that, then you know they need to actually put a plan in place for how we collect. Um, and and in particular, I think the RT crisis has done enormous damage to people's confidence, some people's confidence in public service broadcasting. So I think you know we we need to see a serious. And, and fairly immediate response from government as to how they're going to ensure that the 1,800 people working within RT going in day in, day out to you know provide a service to the highest standard that they're supported in their work this year. Now, the, the Oireachtas Investigation Committee, I think both PAC and the, the media group, um, I, I think it's PAC, they have said that they will sit again as soon as possible once they have received more information that they're looking for. Will this happen before... The Doyle resumes in in autumn. Will will the, the committee sit again during the summer? Yeah, I, I think it, a lot depends on what information is provided, and obviously we're still waiting for that Grant Thornton report. Um, I, I think the, both the PAC and the media committee have offered to sit during the summer. My own personal view is that I think any of us will certainly be there if a meeting is called. But I my my own sense at this stage is that it'll be early September by the time any meetings take place. And in some ways, it may be no harm because I think look. Our team needs to come back with a comprehensive set of answers. We haven't, you know, there's been so much of the he said, she said, um, which I think has been very frustrating to many of us. Um, so, you know, we need to ensure that whatever reporting is, is undertaken, that it's comprehensive in nature. And certainly if, it ha- if that happens to start September, then I'll be happy with that. And the new Director General, Kevin Backhurst, announced last week that his plan is to sell the RTE studios, the, the building that it's housed in on Father Matthew Key. Now, he wants to move to another location, which he hopes will be within the city boundary. How do you feel about that? Is this, is he going to, is this a possible hint that he might be, he might be moving towards a situation which will make RTE Cork a smaller group? Well, I think it's really important. Uh, like, uh, I, I think those who are outside of Dublin very much uh, appreciate um, just how important public service broadcasting is for, for you know, around the country, and of, and of course all the, all the regional radio stations as well. But I think it is absolutely vital that RT maintains its presence right across the country. So if there is a proposal, you know, or when we see that proposal to sell for the Matthew Key, the premises for the Matthew Key, then I, I think we'll, we'll, we'll need to see, you know, an operation of similar size or indeed bigger, um, you know, within within a, a similar location or within a, a decent location within, within Cork. Um, because 
I, I don't believe we can countenance or accept a scaling back of the operation out of Cork. Senator Marie Sherlock, thank you for joining us this morning. Join the conversation. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Cork's 96FM. Welcome back. Price hikes on fuel, uh, alcohol, streaming services and more are on the way despite inflation rates slow down. Um, Charlie Weston, who's personal finance editor of the Irish Independent, is on the line. Good morning to you, Charlie. Good morning, Garrett. Um, how are you? How, we're, we're, how are you? Be- I'm very well. It's good to talk to you, Charlie. And I know things are very busy for you at the moment. Um, we're being warned to brace for another raft of price hikes. Isn't that the case? Yeah, just at a time when you might think, you know, inflation is slowing down a bit. All the official, official measures of inflation show that it's easing. We have two measures in this country. We have one from the Central Statistics Office. They call it the Consumer Price Index. Uh, they, they said that, um, you know, the, the latest figure they had was 6% in June for, for inflation. That's way down from about 10%. Mm. And then there's a different one, the Harmonized Index uh, produced by the CSO and Eurostat. Now, that doesn't take account of mortgages, so that's lower. It's just under 5%. But despite that, we, we've seen a number of, of price increase announcements lately. So, you know, as we come into the winter and autumn, people have been warned to brace for higher prices. We're talking about petrol and diesel as gradually excise duty goes back up on that. Uh, we're already seeing prices at the pumps go up uh, every day and getting people sending me photographs of higher prices. Alcohol is going up, streaming services, transport costs. And of course, we've, we're still waiting, 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 waiting uh, for electricity and gas prices to come down despite all the increases and despite the wholesale par- cost of electricity and gas coming down. That has not been passed on to consumers yet. So I suppose, you know, Spotify, that's going up by about a, a euro a month uh, at the moment. Netflix, they're increasing prices. And if you use both of those, you could be looking at an extra 120 euros a year. There's also um, a clampdown on, um, uh, you know, sharing passwords. But sharing, it's putting up its prices by 5%. And then petrol and diesel, you know, the the, the restoration of the full excise duty on those is adding to the cost. Um, in September and October, uh, the, you know, the, 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 there'll be another 15 cents a litre on petrol and 11 on diesel when the, those two phased increases go through. I, I was so, trying you know, to figure it, out, Charlie, I was trying to do my figures on this this morning and I estimate, now maybe I'm, I'm way out on this, but it, it, the average household could be squeezed for another thousand euro per year if you combine all of these together, couldn't they? They could, you know, depending on, 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 on you know, the, the, the mix of kind of services and, and goods they have, you know, because you're, yeah, you're talking about key things like, um, you know, carbon tax going up as well, for example, on that lad to fuel costs about two euros a litre, um, you know, and, and carbon tax comes in as well on, on, on uh, gas and heating oil, uh, the, you know, Diageo is add, adding again adding to the price of a pint four cents mm. uh th- that's coming in from august the 14th um you know uh, gar- carbon tax adds about 130 euros to gas costs and about 140 euros in total to oil home heating oil i mean you know be- the, the latest increases will add something like 19 euros to a 900 litre tank of, of home heating oil and about one half million homes he, heat their homes with, with, with kerosene or home heating oil and gr- grocery prices they continue to go up Garrett you know there's no easing on that that's about grocery inflation it's about 15% at the moment according to 
the consultant's Cantar, uh, and then we just don't know uh, what impact this this um, the the Russians pulling pull, the Russians pulling out of that grain deal, yeah. allowing export of, of Ukrainian grain that'll probably have an impact on bread, cereals, pasta prices, and then airfares they're going up at a ferocious rate as well. So all told, yeah, you know people have been warned that you know the, 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 the rate of inflation may be coming down a bit, but prices are still increasing. It's just that they're not increasing at the rate that they were, but they are still increasing, and families are feeling that. Uh, single people are feeling it as well, but um, it's been particularly felt by families, and of course we're coming into... You know, around this time of year, people start considering or start, start preparing for the back to school costs, buying mm. uniforms, books, etc. So, an expensive time for families, you know, just back off if they can afford a holiday at all, they have to now get into buying stuff for back to school. So, uh, yeah, the warning is be prepared, prices are continuing to go up. And in relation, Charlie, to the domestic gas and electricity prices, if I remember correctly, we were told earlier in the year that there was a very strong likelihood that the prices would come down again in the autumn. I mean, today's we're, we're, we're into August uh, you know we're three three and a half weeks away from back to school so we're already into autumn is, is there any sign of the prices coming down Nobody is, is in, in, none of the big players have, have cut prices yet. The expectation is that there could be some small cuts, maybe 10%, 20% if we're very lucky, but you know, we'd still end up paying a lot more than uh, the pre-crisis levels, the pre-invasion of Ukraine levels. Uh, but, um, you know, the, 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 the energy companies have been telling us that, oh, look, at they, they, they hedged, uh, they bought wholesale energy at very high prices. That's meant that they, you know, they have to smooth out, they can smooth out the the volatility in the markets and wholesale markets, but uh, they should be coming out of those contracts soon. And the expectation is that, you know, that, that these hedged arrangements uh, will, will, will be priced out of the system and uh, wholesale prices will come down by about a third and hopefully that will feed through into lower prices. And the government is very anxious and has been putting pressure on the energy companies to cut prices, but they're not seeing it yet. I think part of the problem here is that um, if, if one of them cuts, one of the big big four cuts, the likes of um, Electric Ireland, Borgosh, SSC Electricity or uh, Energy. If one of those cuts, they'll get a raft of people switching to them and they don't necessarily want that at the moment because it's such a volatile market. Um, you know, energy, wholesale energy prices, you know, they're up and down all, all the time and, you know, they don't want a whole raft of switchers. So, um they're, they're all holding back watching each other and nothing is happening at the minute so it's very tough for families because you know the, the, the cost of, 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 of electricity for example is doubled in, in the average household and as you mentioned there bread cereals pastas these are the, the you know the, the they, they they form the basis of our our, our daily diet like I know prices went up by almost 15 percent that was in the 12 weeks to July 9th but it, it, it looks as, as you say they're going to go up again. Yeah, well, you know, we are seeing that, that that rate of grocery price inflation coming down and it's been coming down steadily, but it's still very, very high. And ask anybody who wheels a, a trolley around a supermarket, they'll mm-hmm. tell you that the stuff is going up at a ferocious rate. And people who watch prices, uh, even in the discounters, uh, stores are, are telling me that, look, at you know, I bought this for X uh 
three weeks ago it's now uh, you know multiple of what it was and uh, last year it was it was half the price you know so yeah, there is extraordinary amounts of, uh, of increases going through on grocery prices who's to blame for that you know is it price gouging is there profit margin greedflation going on here is the profit margins being being bumped up unfairly uh, you know we could do it more intrusive uh, regulation by the regulators just checking out who exactly is making the money here is is it justified or not a lot of people would consider that it isn't that they think that the, the rate of increases in, in grocery prices is is is, is unfair and it, it amounts to profiteering um, that's the accusation um, we the only way we can find this out is, is if, if, if there's more intensive scrutiny of what's going on we had some reports done by the competition consumer protection commission they said that there wasn't price gouging going on but a lot of people are scratching their head and going look this seems very very hard to justify these increases yeah in the in the article in the uh, the irish independent charlie you mentioned obviously that airfares are up over 34 percent compared with last year as they say like that's an astonishing rise isn't it it is absolutely extraordinary i mean the era of of cheap flights seems to be coming to an end uh there's huge demand out there people you know were were, uh, post-covid people hadn't uh, you know hadn't gone away even when covid ended some people held back so there's big demand there so you know airlines are finding that they can just bump up the prices and people will pay 34%. That is just extraordinary increases. Yeah. I mean, you know, the rate of inflation is 6% and the airlines are are, are stuffing us for a 34% increase, you know. Uh, so that, that's that's very tough to handle and very tough to take. But unfortunately, that's just what's happening. People are getting uh, hit hard when they go to buy airfares. Is that because demand now is greater than availability of seats in that? Yeah, there's a big element of that, uh, you know, that they, they, they um, that there's, there's an anxiousness. People, people are finding it tough. They want to get away. Uh, you know, they, they have, a, they put aside a few pop or they borrowed a few, a few euros to go on holidays, and they're determined to do that. But they, when they do, they find that they're, it's very expensive. But even then, the the only good thing then is when you get abroad, it's it, it's not as expensive as holidaying in Ireland. Yeah. So that's the good thing. Mm. Uh, let's talk for a moment about uh, tax tax cuts. Uh, are we going to get a, a tax cut? Do you think for middle income earners in the budget tax strategy? Well, Leo Varadkar, the teacher, keeps promising it. Uh, Fine Gael made a lot of noise about this in May when three junior ministers wrote an article in the Irish Independent promising thousand euros of, of of income tax cuts in the budget. Mind you, when you looked at the papers that were issued by the Department of Finance then uh, a few weeks ago, it's, they're called the Tax Strategy Group papers. Uh, there was no sign that they even had considered this. You know, they look at the costs and the various options in the budget, and I, I looked at it in detail with some tax experts, and I couldn't see that they, you know, that there was any provision being made or, or being planned in the the the. the, the background work being done by the officials to deliver such a cut. So I don't see, I think we'll see some tax cuts in the budget, but not huge. I mean, there is money being put aside for tax cuts, but it won't be enormous. Uh, and, you know, the problem here is if people get a pay rise at all, more of that's going to go at the higher rate, you know, uh, people paying at the twenty at the 40% rate. So, you know, people could do with uh, a widening of, the, of, of that tax band, as they call it, so that you, more of your income is, 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 is not swallowed by uh, swallowed up by higher tax rates. Mm. And the restoration of that full rate of excise duty on petrol and diesel, that, that's looming now, isn't it? That's coming. 
It's coming. It's it's sure it's happened. It's some bits happened already. It's it's happening in a phase basis. There's more to come in September and October, but outside of that, even at the moment, the last couple of days has seen, um, you know, there was a, a steadies. The last AA um, uh, Ireland uh, petrol and diesel survey found prices were steady. That's not the case anymore. Prices are starting to creep up again at the pumps. We don't know fully the reason for that. It's got to do with you know global uh, wholesale oil prices, but um, you know, uh, or, or is it just people have taken their, their their eye off it so there's an opportunity here for the people who trade in oil to kind of in in petrol and diesel to push up the prices uh certainly people need to be very wary of the fact that yeah yeah prices are starting to go up again and excise duty will go up again in september and october and then finally the luxury items spotify netflix as you mentioned uh, these items will will this have a negative effect on the popularity will people start getting rid of these streaming services yeah, they may well do. I mean, people often find that when they go and look at their finances, they have a whole string of subscription services that tend to be very expensive, you know, and particularly as well if the household is, it watches sport, it's expensive to buy into the um, the sports packages. Um, Spotify, yeah, the, 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 the Spotify price has gone up by a euro a month to uh, between 10.99 and 14.99. And... Um, Netflix is also increasing as well, and uh, the b- b- password sharing that they're clamping down on that, which means that households may have to shell out more money. In, uh, you know, if, if if they're not sharing, if they're sharing a password at the moment, and if they have to take out additional subscriptions, so that is something that many households will look at and consider whether savings can't be made on that. Yeah, and before I let you go, Charlie, Revolut uh, has announced this week they're launching their new car insurance service. Isn't that right? That's right, yeah. Uh, it's for a select number of, of their own uh, uh, customers who signed up for it so far. Uh, they're promising, you know, will, will this be delivered or not, I don't know, 30% cheaper uh, rates. It's good to see another player in there. Mm. Now, they are uh, they are essentially selling AIG insurance. AIG, as you know, a uh, big insurance company sponsored the dubs. Uh, um, and it's, been ro- it's going to be rolled out now to over 2 million of its uh Revolut customers in the coming months. Uh, it's another. Hopefully, it's more competition there, and we sh- we we hope that we'll see uh, that they will deliver on on lower prices. They're also saying that if you sign up for an app that that um, essentially uh, monitors your driving, and if you're a safe driver, you can get additional uh, discounts on that. And if you have one of the 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 the, the uh, Revolut uh, plans or cards that you you pay a fee for, you get an, an extra ten percent discount as well. So look at it, it's additional competition. We hope it just it, it it'll be good for the market. Hopefully, yeah. It, it, you know, it's interesting. This smart driving device, um, it's it's an app. You just have it on your phone. You don't attach it to the car at all. I tried it out for a couple of years there, and it is very very beneficial because uh, it reminds you that if you keep within the speed limits, if if uh, the, the the sensor in the app or whatever it does. Tech Technologically, I'm not sure, but it can actually record your rate of driving, your driving styles, your speed of driving and that. Uh, we found that we got a reduction the following year as a result of keeping within the, the, the boundaries yeah. of what they expect you to do. So it, it, it strikes me as being a, a fair deal. Yeah, and at least to say for driving, you know, it's a smart driving device, they call it. Yeah, it transmits your location and your speed data to to AIG. So AIG can tell if you're pulling away at speed from traffic lights or if you're yeah. t- pulling away at a reasonable rate, uh, you know, are, are, are you 
belting it uh, when you get a chance and, and just taking it easy in other places. Um, so, yeah, if you drive in a steady, safe way, the, the app will monitor that, pick it up, and, uh, you know, you, you, yeah, you get a discount, which would reflect the fact that you're a safe driver. And they're also saying that customers can pay in 12 monthly installments, which is a, a, that's a big attraction, isn't it? Yeah, we well, can do that for, for all, all insurance companies, but they tend to charge you for it. Yeah. Uh, but um, uh, if you pay up front, they're saying that you get an additional discount for, for paying up front. Uh, but you still have the option of paying monthly. A lot of people just find it easier to pay their insurance monthly. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, there, there's some options there. They need to be considered by, by people, but um, it, 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 it's another player in the market. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it, it should be good. Um, Revolut are a disruptor, disruptor. They're trying to create a super app so that... Uh, You'll be able to get everything. Uh, mortgages are probably next. Uh, so, you know, uh, it, 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 it remains to be seen. You know, it's, it, it's a worry for banks and insurance yeah. companies that here's this company coming in here and uh, they seem to be able to do things uh, a lot more efficiently and faster. The only big downside that I see is that if you have issues uh, with Revolut, you can't uh, you can't ring somebody. You know, with, the insu- with the car insurance, we're not sure about this yet, but I mean, if you have an issue or a claim, you need to be able to ring somebody. You probably can ring AIG, who are providing the underlying insurance. Uh, but, you know, because if you're trying to get contact, Revolut can be difficult. To, uh, you're, you're talking about chat boxes and things like that, which mm. can be awkward enough to use. Yeah. Charlie, great to, to talk to you. Thanks for joining us this morning. Cheers, Gareth. Thanks Thank a lot. You. Thank you. That's Charlie Weston there. Um, it's not good for those on low to middle income, that's for sure. But, you know, we'll get by, we'll get by. Uh, Charlie Weston, personal finance editor of the Irish Independent. And uh, that article, by the way, if you're interested on Revolut Car Insurance, uh, they're launching in Ireland uh, yesterday, I think it is, or today, with a quote taking just minutes on the app. Uh, check that out. That's uh, uh, There's a, an interesting article this week in the Irish Independent by Sarah Collins on that. Welcome back. Now, I think this summer, more so than many previous summers, you know, stretching back to pre-pandemic days, uh, this summer, more so than any in recent years, lots and lots of people have seized the opportunity to go and get abroad and get a tan and take time out for a couple of weeks with their families and friends. Holiday season's well and truly upon us. I'm just looking out the window here at what looks like a pretty empty city. And sunbed wars are happening at holiday hotspots across Europe. You can really become obsessed by this whole business of getting the towel onto the sunbed lounger as early as you possibly can. Owen Curry joins me from Air and Travel magazine. Morning to you again, Owen. How are you? Oh, good morning, Gareth. From a beautiful, sunny uh, side of Ireland. I hope it's as sunny down your end. Yeah, it's beautiful here. It's beautiful. I don't think we're... we're it's probably not warm or, or enticing enough here in Ireland to have a sunbed lounger with your towel on it. But this is... It's its like a war zone, isn't it, in many of the popular holiday resorts abroad? Yeah, it's got a sort of a popular culture uh, reference of its own. You know, the sunbed wars, uh, the particular nationalities who are renowned for getting up early and putting their towels on the sunbed. It's all about the towels. Now, we've had uh, different uh, we've had different uh, references to this down the years, mainly in English um, popular newspapers. We had an incident a few years ago where somebody got up and uh, burned uh, a big pile of towels so they'd all be left out very early in the morning. And we had a newspaper headline before an England versus Germany match about referencing beach towels because for some peculiar reason the Germans have the reputation of being the ones who are up earliest, uh, put their towels on the sunbed and then uh, they sit there, uh, the towels sit there and everybody else who's late out of bed says, oh, the sunbed 
feather taken. And why? I, I used to think this was a myth, but it it tends to be German people, and I suppose in many respects, most German people find it very difficult to get to a beach. You know, when they're not on holidays, is is it a kind of a possessive streak in them? Is it because they're saying, well, you know, I, I think one, one psychologist once said that many German people have a sense of entitlement about them. Uh, I'm not sure it's a German, you know, you do come across um, within Belgium, one side of Belgium saying the others are more a beach towel. I think what really happened was that the package holiday, it came of, it came to be invented around the same time in England and Germany. There were the two big outbound markets. So they collided at the first resorts, the resorts like Benidorm and places like that that would have opened in Franco, Spain. And um, you were t- a situation which still prevails where you've too few sunbeds for too many holidaymakers um, who is out of bed early are the Germans quite better at getting out of bed than the English in the, to paraphrase Leo Varadkar the man who gets out of bed in the morning uh, we leave that to the listeners to decide <laughs> and um, why don't hotel staff enforce the, the sun lounger policies are, are they just too busy doing other stuff Okay, the sun lounger policy. Now you have opened, you've opened a particular can of sunbeds. Um, the can of towels probably be better analogy. The the reality is that um, there a lot of hotels say fifteen minutes unattended. Uh, you're we're going to take your towel. And mm. um, some places enforce it. Some people uh, get react very badly to it. I had a terrible incident myself in uh, Las Vegas, of all places, where I went into the pool and I came back and my sunbed had, was now a towel and bathrobe taken from it mm-hmm. um, because they said I'd been gone for 15 minutes. I only had been in the pool about three minutes. Um, they This led to a big confrontation. They wanted to charge me $80 because the bathrobe was from my home. Mm-hmm. Open. They wanted to charge me eighty dollars. Now I won the argument, but yeah. you do it when you're on a in a break somewhere. So the hotels. You're, you're dropping out a fair bit, Owen. I, I'm just wondering if, if um, I'm just wondering if maybe you could. <laughs> I'll move. I'll yeah, move. I was yeah, just going to say that. No, it's, yeah. I'm fine. Yeah, if you could please, because uh, if I, I remember doing an interview like this once, and the, the presenter said, "If you can turn around," I said, "Why?" <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. That sounds I'll, better. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll try and move. I'll, I'll actually. Uh, I'm, in, I'm actually pulled over on the side of the road, so I get out of my car and see if I can get any. Oh, please there might mind be yourself. Bit, there might be a little bit of traffic noise. Oh no, I'm safely pulled in as always. But anyway, um, the the. the there is always shirty people. When you try and enforce your sunbed policy, it leads to extra rows with the customers. Hotels want to avoid that. Mm. Um, what, Las Vegas, what uh, the sun lounger philosophy, the, the, the sort of sun lounge psychology in, in a place like, like Las Vegas where you have rooftop swimming pools at sort of 23 stories high, <laughs> uh, how, how different is that to somewhere like, say, Santa Ponza? Yeah, well, Santa Ponza is real beach. Uh, they pretend beaches in Las Vegas. They've won resort. The resort where it happened is, uh, had a big sand uh, simulating a beach. And you also got to remember, you don't stay in a hotel in Las Vegas. You stay in a tourism factory. Some of these places have eight or 9,000 rooms. So wow. it's real conveyor belt stuff. So let's get to uh, the cut to the chase here. Santa Ponza, the lures of uh, 
of leaving cert students <laughs> where they go on pilgrimage. Um, so they, what we've seen is resorts growing in size, hotels growing in size, uh, number of holidaymakers uh, increasing, but the actual sunbed space and the number of sunbeds available has more or less stayed the same. So you're talking about uh, supply and demand, where the supply is steady and the demand gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, when it comes to things like beaches, um, there's uh, com- private enterprise things where they rent out the sunbeds and they, people always complain about the price of them. And it goes by uh, the, how important a particular um, how important a particular resort becomes in popular culture that the price of the sunbeds starts going up. So, you know, there's always rows about the price of sunbeds, the availability of them, but the beach towel, um, how the beach towel on the sunbed has become the ubiquitous signal that this is mine, do not touch. And I've seen people just arrive at a, at a, a sunbed dump the beach towel and then when the person comes back usually from and out with an ice cream or coming back from the pool unmerciful rows breaking out I don't think it's ever going to go away and there's any solution for it Yeah, I remember one incident many years back um, I think it might have been, I'm not sure now in Santa Ponza the Day Apartments, I think they're still there, it's still very popular with uh, many Irish people it's, but one of the, it's our most popular resort, there are 3,500 Irish people in Santa Pons every week of the year. If this was in the census, the census 2022, it would be the equivalent of a large country town in Cork. Wow. You know, somewhere yeah. like, you know, in Middleton's a bit bigger than that, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Three and a half thousand Irish at any stage. You might as well be in Ireland when you're in Santa Ponza. Yeah, well, I think we, we tend, as, as a, a culture, we tend to sort of gravitate to each other. Like the first thing you do if you were arriving on Sunday was to find a pub that was showing the All-Ireland football final. Yeah. And there are, there are about 40 of them in Santa Paula. And the other thing is avoid the English. The English are the other side of the mountain in Magaluf and the Irish and the Scottish are in Santa Ponza because they really don't want to be in the same resort when there's all mm. that uh, come on, football's coming home, all that nonsense stuff. Yeah. Well, I do, I do remember actually seeing a free sunbed many years ago and thinking... It's unusual to find because every sunbed was packed, had, a, had an occupant. But unfortunately, the, the Union Jack towel had blown off and I <laughs> innocently thought that it was a free sunbed until this very um, rotund and heavily tattooed man with a, a large litre of lager he was carrying with both hands <laughs> arrived back and he said to me in two words, and those two words basically meant, I think you should get off that bed as quickly as you possibly can. <laughs> that's my only experience of sunbed tragedies. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the, that's where the real issue arises. When the, uh, it's a polite German, uh, as you say, uh, that's you know, doing everything by the rules, making sure he had the sunbed, had waited with his watch to see was it 15 minutes <laughs> yeah. they was it 15 minutes vacant and then taken us and then he meets the rotund tattooed uh, pot-bellied <laughs> liverpudlian and that's where real sunbed tragedy <laughs> yeah that's not a that's not sunburn I have on my face yeah um, can I take you to uh, the heat on the continent at the moment I, can I make a guess I think you're in Connemara I could be wrong um, the reality is that uh, the heat on the continent has a basis um, the, Portugal never suffered. Port, Spain yeah. got a bad week at uh, end of it. Uh, Greece is still far too hot, but the uh, uh, the focus switched to the uh, f- uh, wildfires and the, uh, the uh, 
in danger or perceived danger to tourists. And there was a real, a uh, couple of real situations where tourist resorts were too close to the fire and the cases. Got a lot of coverage, but that's the basis. And the and traffic to and from um, places like Corfu and Sicily was an issue because access to the airport was an issue in Palermo. And we had an airport fired unrelated to the heat wave in Catania and Ryanair being Ryanair, they were fighting at Comiso Airport and had pulled all their services from there earlier this year. So it did look like we would have an access issue to Sicily, but all the uh, flights are continuing as normal and the tour operators, to their credit, were very generous with date changes. Uh, people who uh, were a little bit worried about getting out, um, elderly, small children with the heat and then asthma issues, things like that with the smoke. Uh, they were very good with date changes. Ryanair less so, but that's Ryanair. Yeah. And finally, Owen, I'll let you go after we chat about the the, the 34% increase in airfares compared with last year. Uh, Charlie Weston from the Irish Independent was talking to us about an hour ago. That's a huge increase, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it comes in little layers. Um, the Ryanair have been less uh, 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 less apparent in uh, raising airfares to and from Ireland. Uh, they did well on the fuel hedging last year. They're not doing so well on the fuel hedging this year. Michael O'Leary said, I might have got it wrong in 2023, but I look forward to getting it right every year for the next 10 years. But, but um, what... Uh, We've, we've seen airfares in Ireland come up by a slightly less, but overall, worldwide, it's 42%. And according to the Airport Council's International, it's about uh, 34%. So it is a big increase. It's, um, are there still bargains? Because of the nature of airfares, the trunk routes, the ones that are busy, the ones where the demand outstrips the supply, that's, they're the ones where the fares uh, chase very, very high. Um, there's always a couple of routes that are less popular and very often they're, very, they're getting you to almost the same place. A good example would be Murcia in mm. Spain, not as expensive as Alicante. Another problem uh, specific to Ryanair is a lot of their aircraft that they had scheduled uh, were late. They were late arriving from Seattle. So they had to reduce, for instance, Barcelona by one flight a day. And when you reduce... Uh, you take 189 seats out of an equation it uh, it does push the fares for everything else up Alright, enjoy your time in the west of Ireland Owen and Looking great. forward to it very much Gareth, yeah, thank great, you so much Great to talk to you as always, thank okay. you Take Bye. care, that's um, travel expert Owen Curry there talking about uh, a variety of things, it's all holiday season these days, if you're heading away this weekend, have a lovely time uh, if you're just back commiserations although i used to find that you know years and years and years of traveling to um the continent on package holidays and that uh, you kind of secretly were always delighted to get back and sort of put the suitcases away for another year uh but right now i'd give anything i think for a week away in the sun maybe later on in the year anyway Join the conversation. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. This is the Opinion Live with PJ Coogan. Now, a new podcast from journalist Aoife Moore delves into the reality of life online for people across Ireland with interviews from those who troll them. And Aoife joins me right now. Morning to Aoife. Good morning. I listened to the first episode this morning and I was immediately drawn in. The, it, 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 it's, um, 
you say it exactly as it is and I take it that you've come through so many bad experiences as a result of the work you do as a journalist and you've been criticised so heavily by some of these keyboard warriors that uh, I would imagine it's taken a huge toll on your health down through the years. Yeah, it was actually when I started at the Irish Examiner um, and started writing about politics full time that it really... um, changed gear I became incredibly anxious and paranoid um I didn't want to go to press conferences I didn't want to go on tv I didn't like being on the radio because when I did I was immediately hit with a barrage of unbelievably hateful comments um which ranged from you know accusing me of crimes um to you know comments about my looks and my alleged sex life and it was a really negative experience I was very lucky um at the examiner they were incredibly supportive and helpful um but I'm not everyone is lucky and I know a lot of journalists a lot of politicians a lot of influencers a lot of celebrities go through the exact same thing that I went through um, and they don't talk about it for fear. There's a lot of fear of like, being seen as weak or being seen as complaining. Um, and I wanted to kind of get to the nub of this, why people do it, who they do it to, and what effect it has both on the bully and the person that they're bullying. As a, as a journalist, and you, you're, you're a very well-known and successful journalist, as you mentioned, oh, uh, <laughs> at, at the Irish Examiner particularly, the, the, the nature of of journalism is making and breaking news stories that are relevant to to, to everybody. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm I'm curious to know, as a journalist, you, you you transparency is very important. Also, the thoroughness of the 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 piece that eventually makes it to the newspaper that you've been investigating, maybe for a week, maybe for a year. Why do mm-hmm. people criticise you? Why do people come back and say? call you names, accuse you of, as you say, crimes and, and, and accost your personal private life? Everyone has, um, everyone receives a different type of abuse depending on the person. So the abuse that women get online is very different from the abuse that men get online. Um, and that goes for journalists, politicians, people in the public eye in general. So my uh, personal abuse was a lot about the fact that I was from the North. Um, a lot of people um, defamed me that I was not worthy of my job, that I was not professional, that I was a supporter of terrorism because of where I come from. And that followed me around. It really profoundly affected me. But some things are able to, you know, you can put that down to ignorance. You can say people don't understand the North. They don't know anyone from the North. And this is an easy thing to say about me. But then on the other side of it, some of it is completely inexplicable. One of the worst death threats I ever got was after Golfgate when Dara Cleary, the Minister for Agriculture at the time, Phil Hogan, the EU Trade Commissioner, um, resigned. And I had to appear at Pier Street Garda Station um, to report a serious num- a number of serious death threats because Phil Hogan and Dara Cleary lost their jobs. Um, there's no rhyme or reason behind that. There's no common sense where you could explain that away. Um, and... What we really tried to do with the podcast is we speak to a psychologist, uh, a cyber psychologist, who kind of tries to explain, you know, why people uh, bullying because it is the same as bullying. It's just carrying on a different platform. But the difference between online bullying um, and real life bullying is people will say things online that they would never ever say in real life. And the most interesting thing I think is looking into the psychology of that disconnect. Why people are so different online than they are in real life? Because I think. What I would like a lot of people to take away from the podcast is that the notion that trolls are 
you know, these losers um, who have no life partner who live in their mommy's back bedroom. It's not the case. Um, a lot of people who show people are successful, well-rounded in their life, <laughs> mm. people with good jobs and families. Um, most of the people named, most of the men who are named with their own profiles who have sent me some of the most horrible abuse will have pictures of their daughters and their children in their profile picture. So the notion that this is some weirdo who lives under a bridge um, is something I believe we really need to get away from. Yeah. And what's their what's their aim? Is it is it to destroy you? Is it is it simply just because they they envy you? I don't know. It is quite it's hard to understand. I think for some men, some of the men genuinely just don't like women. Um that's part of it. But then I have had like reams of abuse. It's not just men, women are trolls too. The troll and I got from women and, and I actually would say in the podcast we talk to celebrities and we talk to influencers and they say that some of the especially for females, some of the worst abuse that they have received is from other women. Um I think with with other women, it tends to be, it can be insecurity or jealousy. I think we men, it's a lot of um, misogyny and sexism. Um, I think people are quite, some people are quite intimidated um, when they see a change. You know, female journalists, especially political correspondents of a certain age and with a certain look, weren't that common maybe 20 years ago. That's definitely changed now. There are plenty of us successful young female political journalists and we all get um, a lot of abuse. And I think that makes people uncomfortable. I think change makes people uncomfortable. But I do think, and the psychologist says this as well, is that people do get off on it. You know, people do get a buzz mm. out of making someone else feel bad. Um, not everyone does, of course. A lot of some of it might come from their own insecurities, but a lot of it is, you know, people who want to drag other other people down. And I think, you know, it's easy to say, you know, that you know, as I said, it's easy to say these people are all losers and they don't matter. But I think a lot of people would be incredibly shocked at the people that we have found that actually do bully people only. Mm. You mentioned, Aoife, there that um, the, the fact that you're from the north, that you're from Derry, has, has drawn uh, a certain degree of tolling as well. And, and I know your mm-hmm. uncle uh, was one mm-hmm. of the 14 murdered by the Parachute Regiment in Derry on Bloody Sunday. How has mm-hmm. that affected, how, how has that influenced your journalism? <sighs> Well, yeah, I always say that, like, I don't think I really could have had any other career considering the family that I came from. You know, our family was the founding family of the Bloody Sunday Justice Campaign. So while we were never political, we were a campaigning family. We were always at press conferences and protests and marches and there was always press around. Um, And I think Bloody Sunday is probably the best example in Ireland of how good the press can be and how bad the press can be. Mm -hmm. So in the immediate aftermath of Bloody Bloody Sunday, the British Army put out a statement um, saying that the murdered and injured men, women and children on the day were IRA gunmen. Um, The British press printed that um, verbatim, never questioned it, and printed the lies that the British Army told, which then led our family and all the other families for a 40-year campaign to clear their names. But then the other side of it is without the public pressure from the press and some of the press, including the Derry Journal, our local paper at the time, and newspapers here in Ireland, were the papers, were the media saying, this is not true, that the the British Army has lied. So I had seen how bad the press can be and then how important the press is for public opinion. 
Mm. Um, and that's why I became a journalist. I probably became a journalist because I hated the press for so long. <laughs> um, yeah. And now, and yeah. now I've come full circle because it is it is a privilege to do the job I do. But you have to be very careful because the press do wield a lot of power as well. Yeah, and of course, I mean, it makes perfect sense what you say. I mean, I think a lot of people, a lot of people who become journalists become journalists because they they want to be better than a lot of the stuff that they read when they were younger. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And sometimes, you know, we're quite lucky here in Ireland and I worked, I have worked in Australia and I worked in, in England and, and Scotland and the tabloid press here is nowhere near what it's like um, in London. Um, you know, the, the things that they get away with printing is not something that would be tolerated here in Ireland. And I think we should be grateful for that. The, the press here is not without um, its issues. I think everyone would agree with that. But I think you know, when it comes to the press here, we are at a different standard than you would see in the tabloid press in London, especially when it comes to the shaming of celebrities who might have addiction problems, um, who may have gained weight, who might have mental health problems. Um, So I do think, although we have issues here, it's nowhere near um, the issues that they have in, in England. But that in itself also drives trolling because the mainstream media set a standard and then when they when people see that the like that certain national newspapers over there will say these hurtful and cruel things and spread rumor, then that gives other people then the permission to do it too. Coming from uh, um, well, as it was war torn Derry and from the north <laughs> and and through those shocking days, um, th- that has given you. I gather from listening to the first episode of the podcast this morning, which I have to say is excellent, and congratulations oh, on it. I, I recommend it to everybody, not just people who have been trolled, but people who don't know uh, about the risks of trolling and about the effects of trolling on other people. Um, I, I get the feeling. It has made you uh, almost quite militant and, and it's given you an entrenched belief that many other journalists don't have. Would that, would that be a fair assessment? I just think I have experienced so much of it compared to other journalists. Yeah. Now, don't get me wrong, other journalists in Dublin um, and across Ireland do obviously receive abuse, but mine was so consistent. I think it was every single day, every time I left up my phone for another knocking on two years. Um, and it has completely, it completely changed me as a person. It ruined some of my personal relationships. I became paranoid and anxious and I had to seek help for my mental health and I didn't want to do my job anymore. And I think, and that's the reason I did this podcast, is if I could stop one person being hateful online to someone they don't know, that would be enough for me. And what I find most interesting in, you know, the podcast only dropped yesterday, it comes out every Monday, there's eight episodes and they come out every Monday, but yesterday, most of the messages I have received are actually people with children who are saying that they are concerned about cyberbullying in school. And we have an episode that talks about cyberbullying, about the effects on children, not just the children who are being bullied online, but the children who do it. And I think, you know, that I think some people maybe think that trolling is something that only happens to celebrities and politicians. And what we are seeing now is that actually in Ireland, we're in the top 10 for problematic behavior online for teenagers across Europe. Mm-hmm. And it's something that people should be concerned about because years ago when I was at school and you were at school, if you got bullied at school, you went home when the bullying stopped. That's not the case anymore. Yeah. And that I think is one of the most interesting points is that I've had so many messages from mammies saying that they, you know, it's something they're really concerned with um, as their young ones start, you know, even primary school and secondary school. Mm. 
Now, you talked to some very well-known people, Moirin O'Connell from um, Virgin Media, Ireland AM, mm-hmm. Paul Murphy TD, who has been subjected to some horrendous trolling online, uh, Grace Mongi, Eva Devlin, influencers. It, mm-hmm. You know, when you become an influencer, it, it, it not only is it just a business opportunity, um, but you also see it as... An, an opportunity to share your experience with other people, but by doing so, you're also you're attracting the wrong type, aren't you? The, the influencer thing is the thing I find most jarring. Um, it's the people I have found that garner the least sympathy, um, which is strange because these are people who, compared to the rest of us, are the most normal, if normal is even a thing. But, you know, people will say, well, they put themselves forward and they put their lives online, so they should deserve to get some blowback, mm. um, which blow criticism um, of maybe, you know, how they advertise things or how things are done on their Instagram is one thing. But I have spoken to influencers who were pregnant and were driven to suicidal ideation because of the consistent abuse that they received online, the rumors being spread online. Someone has had Tusla phoned on them, reported them for child abuse. This is not fair criticism. This is abuse. And I find it so strange because someone said to me, well, yeah, they sell face creams on Instagram and they don't even use them. And I, all I could think was, I think, you know, Scarlett Johansson and Jennifer Lawrence are the face of Neutrogena. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know if people are going after them and phoning, um, you know, Tesla or whoever else or reporting them because they don't think they actually use Neutrogena. But there is something about an influencer who is kind of like you who might live in the same city or the same, you know, province or whatever it is. There's something about the girl who's kind of like you that drives this kind of really, really intense hatred and jealousy, which is, I find, that is the thing I, the thing I find most jarring, is the general lack of any empathy for influencers, whether they're fashion influencers, beauty influencers, travel influencers. Um, it is. It has been the most shocking thing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know where it comes from at all. Another aspect you touch on in the first edition of the podcast um, is misogyny, which is very clearly mm-hmm. al- alive and well here in Ireland. It's alive and well everywhere. <laughs> but yeah, and like in the type of abuse, the, the cyber psychologist we spoke to, um, Nicola Fox Hamilton, talks about this. So for me, even just to use myself as an example, so most of the abuse I got on Twitter um, was from men. And the abuse um, tended to be about maybe like my assumed politics. Um, There would be a lot of, you know, she's, I'm not going to swear, but she's a stupid C word and stupid B word. It was a lot about my intelligence. Um, There would often be, you know, blonde, you know, all those kind of negative kind of insults. But with women, it tends to be um, that I have slept with a number of people in order to get the job or the story that I got. Um, they seem very, very intent on delving into my personal life, which I never, ever publicly talk about, which I think kind of drives them onwards to then make stuff up. You sort of feel like you can't win. Maybe if I shared this part of my life and told them I had this person in my life, they would leave it alone. But you know that that's just feeding the beast. So it is very, very different. But misogyny is alive and well with both men and women. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyone who uses social media or looks at any of the gossip websites will see that women um and this, uh, with women it nearly hurts you more because it's <laughs> more personal um and women we actually talked to the psychologist about this women know how to hurt other women more mm. than men 
um, and that does come from a lot of rumour and gossip and like degrading them without calling them, you know, ugly. It'll be something a lot more personal than that. And uh, also, in one of the episodes forthcoming, Jackie Fox tells you her story about her daughter's untimely death. This was after years of online and in-person abuse, wasn't it? Yeah, and Jackie's episode, um, I honestly believe, is, is the most profound because it goes back to what I said of, you know, there's a lot of view that trolling is something that just happens to celebrities. And we know that's not the case. And, you know, Nicole... Fox's life um, is a testament to this has to be taken seriously. Um, without Jackie Fox, there would not be the um, new harassment law that we have. But the fact is that it shouldn't have had to happen. Um, Nicole should be here. And Jackie talks really eloquently about the, the constant abuse. You know, when Nicole was starting to be bullied on nights out in the nightclubs, at least she could come home. And at least she could escape that. But then when it started online, it became inescapable for her. And that, I think, um, is, is the in my view, it's the best episode, but it is the hardest they listen to because it's every parent's worst nightmare, but it's every parent's worst nightmare wrapped up for the internet age. Mm. Aoife, thank you for researching and for recording this and putting it out there. Uh, I, I listened to the first episode, which dropped... Oh, I think today is it? Yesterday, that's right. Yesterday, yeah. 31st. Um, and I'm looking forward to the next seven episodes and uh, and to, to what lies ahead because I think you're going to have such a huge impact on people's lives thanks to this. And I urge everybody to listen Thank to it over the next eight weeks. Lovely to talk Thank to you, you. Aoife. Can I just say it's exclusive on Outcaster, which is an Irish independent platform, so it's sure. not on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It's just it's on uh, Outcaster exclusively, so that's where people can find it. That's great. Okay, thank you, Aoife. Take Perfect. care. Thanks so much. Thank, thank you. you. Bye bye. Uh, if you just Google Aoife Moore Trolled, that's the name of it. Trolled a podcast about life online and uh, there's one episode there the first episode is there available this week and uh, another seven to come <laughs> if you're sitting outside a pub right now in Albufeira uh, I'd say you're hearing that at least every half an hour great summer music uh, ciao adios Anne-Marie headlining on Saturday evening at Independence in Mitchellstown hopefully the weather's going to be great uh, it, it's a it's a fantastic weekend looking at the lineup, and if you're busy getting ready for that, I hope the week is going well for you and you're all looking forward to it. Now, speaking of gigs, I don't know whether you've heard of the Beyonce listening only tickets for uh, her current tour. She's currently in the middle of the US leg of the tour, the world tour. The tickets for her Renaissance world tour are, wait till you hear this, they're situated behind the stage, they give no glimpse of the crazy and love singer. Um, one Furious fan said, the whole point of going to the concert is trying to get a seat close, as close as you can so that you can see your favourite star in person and watch the spectacle of the Beyonce concert production. Here, you're sitting at the back of the stage, <laughs> you're buying a ticket that's worth €150. Euro. It's a listening-only ticket for her concerts in seats that offer no view whatsoever of the show. So they probably bang up a few of these big high-pitched speakers. You get to hear good quality, but you get to see absolutely nothing. And I'm thinking of the time when if you knew someone with a boat, you could come up the River Lee, park outside, parky Queeve, somewhere along that stretch of the river, little glass of wine in your hand, you know, some nice little canapes and... Whatever takes your fancy and just wait for Rod Stewart to come on stage or whoever it was. And it's all for absolutely free. And you're sitting there in a beautiful, beautiful sunset evening on the River Lee in your friend's boat. Bliss. But for 150 euro, 
I don't think so. Join the conversation. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Cork's 96FM. Now, welcome back. It's been an incredible journey from Kazakhstan to Kinsale for Amy Keneally. And it all started with an article in The Echo 19 years ago. And I've got Amy's dad on the line. Hi, Jack. How are you? I'm very well, Gareth. Thank you very much. Great to talk to you. And it's it's a, this is such a lovely feel-good story. Um, can you t- take us back? Okay. Actually, the story began over forty years ago. Um, we had we had four kids of our own. We had three boys first, and then we had a girl that Margaret was dying for. And after that, our hands were full, and we couldn't afford any more kids. But a couple of years later. One evening, we just started talking about adoption, and we both liked the idea of it, and we thought that a little bit later, when our kids were a bit older, and things were easier financially, that we might consider adopting a child. And actually, years and years and years passed by, and one evening, Margaret saw this article in the Echo about the greater Chernobyl cause, and this little girl who had been abandoned by uh, the railway track out in Kazakhstan and Fiona Corcoran, the lady who uh, runs a charity here in Cork, which does great work out in Kazakhstan. They, they've improved conditions in the orphanage and brought in medic- they've done loads of things there to mm-hmm. make things better for the kids. So Margaret read the article and she showed it to me and she said, I'd love to do something to help. Um, so I said, look, the phone number's at the end of the article. Why don't you give Fiona a ring tomorrow? Which she did. And she went up to Cork the next day and met Fiona eventually. And um, there was a friendship began from that. And I think Fiona was aware from the outset that Margaret had this intention of adopting one of these kids from Kazakhstan if she could. So a few months later, Fiona rang Margaret one day and told her about this baby girl out in Kazakhstan who had been born with spina bifida and needed to be got out of there for medical reasons to be brought here for treatment that she couldn't get in Kazakhstan. So we hadn't previously considered adopting a child with special needs. It just hadn't occurred to us. So we we spoke about it for a minute and and we thought this is exactly what we want. So it, it took four months for Fiona eventually to get permission to bring uh, the baby here. So she was six months old when we heard about her first and when Fiona arrived in Cork Airport on the 17th of February in 2004, Amy was 10 months old at that time. Her name that time was Ayman, but we changed it to Amy afterwards. We preferred it. Um, And so the story began way back long before she came and it was that the night of the day that Amy arrived in Cork, I was chatting with Margaret that evening and, and um, about the events of the day because it was obviously a huge day in our lives. Mm. And I know when I when I put Amy in her arms in the airport in the morning, Margaret lit up with a kind of happiness that was beyond anything I'd ever seen before. So that night I asked her, what was that about? And she hesitated for a minute or two because... She was, I could see she was making her mind up whether to tell me or not. Anyhow, eventually she told me, she said that when she was a child herself, maybe 12 or 13 years old, 
that one night she had a dream that someday she would rescue a baby. That's extraordinary, no. yeah. Yeah. I, and, and, Jack, I, I, I know you, you lost your beautiful wife, Margaret, and it's not yeah. too long ago, so our condolences yeah. on, on that. Thank you. I'm sure it must be still very hard in, in her absence that she's not there, yes. but you, you, both, you certainly strike me as someone who, who loved her dearly. Yes. Yeah, we, we, I suppose we met when, when Margaret was 15 and I was 18, and uh, we were married when Margaret was 19 and I was 22, so... Yeah. We, Childhood, we had, uh, childhood a long, Yeah, we had yeah. a long, long history together, and uh, went through all the usual ups and downs in life, and the, the rough and tumble, and the good times, and the not as good times, but uh, most of them were good, and um, I suppose... The last nearly 20 years now since we heard of Amy, that has been amazing. It's just, yeah. Yeah, it has been so amazing. Um, I've often said it to Margaret, you know, the last 20 years it have been so boring without Amy. You know, it, life would have just gone on as well as it had been before, which was grand in itself, but we've had so many adventures with Amy. It was, it's just made life wonderful. That's wonderful. Amy, yeah. Amy's there, Jack. Hi there, yeah. Amy. Hi. How are you? Good. You must be very proud now of, of your mum and dad. Oh, I am, yeah. Oh, that's very wonderful. Proud. And they're very proud of you, I can tell. Tell me a little bit from your own viewpoint. Tell me a little bit about the journey to where you are now. Um, well, like, um, I was born out in Kazakhstan and, um, and I needed to be rescued because I needed badly needed medical attention. And um, and and I'm very happy that Fiona was able to bring me to Ireland to be in the medical attention, and um, and I'm very grateful. And um, and uh, well, to me it was great um, living in Ireland because everyone was you know wonderful to me, and it's been amazing living in Ireland with my parents and Fiona. And um, and I can say it was a lovely place. So I absolutely love living in Kinsale in Ireland. Yeah. So it's amazing. Beautiful, beautiful place to live. Fiona yeah. is actually on the line. Fiona Corcoran from uh, the Great Chernobyl Cause. Hi, Fiona. Hi, Gareth. How are you doing? I'm fine. I love these stories because this is what this is what real life is about. It's about it? finding each other and giving each other these wonderful opportunities and and making making people's lives complete. It's all fate, I believe. Good morning. Good morning, Jack. Morning, Amy. Hi, Fiona. Morning, Fiona. How are you? Yeah, it's You're all fate. I truly believe that it is, um, Gareth. And how it all began, and just to give you a little bit of a history, if that's okay yep. with you, Amy came from the baby orphanage in a place called Semi Palantinsk in northeastern Kazakhstan. And Kazakhstan and the problems in Kazakhstan came to my attention back in 1999 and um, basically was another article, which would you believe was in the Observer, the Sunday Observer, back on the 29th of August in 1999, a chap in Dublin picked up the newspaper and read an article about another baby, would you believe, called Ildar Basharov. And uh, within the article, it uh, told the story about the 40-year legacy of nuclear weapon testing in that area. And would you believe in 1949, the collapse of the USSR, um, in 1990, 1991, 
F- oh, Fiona, sorry, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. The, the, the line is very bad. If you just move around a little bit there, okay. I, I, we don't need to ring you back or anything. It's just if you okay. kind of move a, li- a little bit there. Yeah. Just how's that? How was that? That's a bit better. I hope so anyway. Okay. But conti- please what keep was- going. So basically, there was 500 weapons detonated both overground, nuclear weapons detonated overground and underground, which left, as you can imagine. Fiona, basically. I'm, I'm yes. sorry, I'm going to ask you, to, can you move out of the room you're in even, maybe yes. just to, because it's it's a, it's such a wonderful story, I, I don't want to, to miss it. Ah, that's a little bit better. Okay, great. So, so sadly, there were the weapons that were detonated over that period of time and left devastation in its wake. And that article led me to my work in Kazakhstan, and everything is connected, um, and a number of years later. Fiona, do you know, do, Fiona, sorry, we're yeah. going to we're going to call you back uh, if we can, okay? But okay. I'm, uh, just if you hang up there, we'll, we'll try and call you back real quickly. Um, Jack, if I can come back to you, this is Amy's dad. W- when you met Fiona, um, what what was at that stage? The, the, your greatest desire was to adopt, and um, yeah. she, she has a remarkable way about her. She has, you know, the the, the 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 day that she spoke to Margaret on the phone first to, to tell her about this child out in Kazakhstan, uh, the, we said we'd love to uh, adopt her. And so the following evening, Fiona and a colleague, Barbara, came down to see us, partly to tell us all about this child and, and, and um, what would be involved, and partly, obviously, to, to vet us and see that we were suitable. And... Um, Fiona left us a photograph of this baby at that time and we we put the photograph on a mirror in our bedroom so that the last thing every night before you went to sleep was we'd look at this child um, looking back at us and saying first thing every morning as we got dressed we'd have a look at her and, and we kind of got a bond with her long before we met her and then that, that day that, day that Fiona arrived into Cork Airport with her was just magical because all of a sudden, the same baby was looking up at us and kind of wondering what all the fuss about because there was a lot of people there. And it's just something beyond what we'd ever experienced before. Uh, it was quite magical. And that we would, we would never, ever have heard of Amy or um, had the orphanage out in Kazakhstan. Or, and none of that would have happened in our lives without Fiona and, and the, all the work she does. And like, she's a great, great family friend ever since and oh, she's always here for any, any family celebrations Fiona's always a very welcome guest well that's beautiful um, Jack uh, she's, yeah, that's yeah, wonderful she's terrific yeah. thank, thank you for joining us this morning Jack and thank you to Amy um, fortunately the line is too poor to return to Fiona so uh, we'll thank Fiona for, for joining us a little earlier there um Continued love to both of you, and and uh, it, it's it's uh, uh, what's this they say the, the the road hopefully will be long and joyful and plenty plenty of good things to come, Amy. Thank you. And great to talk to you, Jack. Take care. Hi, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Sarah Horgan has been writing about this fantastic story in The Echo this week. It's there for you if you want to check it out. Today's show was edited by Emer O'Hay, produced and researched by Fergal Barry. Thanks to Wayne on the desk. We're back tomorrow from 9.